0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to the Voice of Neuro podcast. On this one, we have our very own Agent Smith, a resident expert on foreign policy, economics, and world history. He doesn't know everything, but he knows a lot of fun stuff that we can pick his brain about. We can talk about current events, we can talk about past, and we can speculate about the future together. Agent Smith, what has been going on this week? How are you doing?
1: Stuff and okay. Nice.
0: (laughs) Brevity is the soul of wit. You must be a witty fellow.
1: Not really, unfortunately. (laughs) No, I'm doing okay. My foot still hurts, but it's getting a lot better, so that's nice. That's good. How about you? How have you been doing?
0: Pretty solid. I would say it's been a... A nice week. I'm getting back into the swing of mixing in more StarCraft content. There was a major tournament, the last WCS Circuit stop of the year. And the guy from Finland who's been dominating for a long time continues to crush. And he went 17-2 and in this tournament, so he only lost two maps. And one of the maps was against a Zerg who has beaten him in a series before. And the other one was actually against the champagne bottle that you're supposed to shake up and spray after you win the whole thing. And that got kind of on the trophy, so it's a little bit sticky. I had to clean that up. So we count that as a, a map score against him. <laughs> but StarCraft is doing well. Uh, the WoW Classic stuff has been a lot of fun. I'm level 52 out of 60. Wow. And we have some exciting stuff coming up this week, which shall be revealed rather soon. Yeah, things are good. I had a power outage yesterday. We had Ooh. a pretty intense thunderstorm uh, here in the Seattle area, which is comparatively rare, I think. Usually there isn't that much thunder. There's a lot of rain, but it's nothing like a Texas storm where it's shaking the ground with the thunder and buckets of rain and that kind of thing.
1: Oh, wow. oh, well, that's too bad. I think I would miss the thunderstorms.
0: Yeah, well, certainly got... A strong enough one last night to knock out the power.
1: (laughs) An expensive thunderstorm, huh?
0: Yeah. So last week we talked a little bit about what's been going on. And sometimes this is the fun thing about talking to you in a week-by-week basis. Some weeks are kind of quiet, and it's business as usual. The usual suspects do their usual things, and it's all kind of normal, but... Last time, there was just a ton of stuff that hit the fan all at the same time, so we didn't even get to unpack all of it. I think Brexit, you said, was one of them that has had a bunch of things going on that we didn't really get to unravel.
1: Yeah, I've definitely got that on my list here, but is there anything the past week that caught your eye that you kind of wanted to get into first, or did you just want to go straight to Brexit?
0: I think Brexit would be good.
1: Okay. Let me see. So, I don't know how much you remember from the last time we talked about it, but basically a guy named Boris Johnson became the new prime minister in the UK. And he took over from Theresa May. And uh, his perspective on Brexit is that it's better to either get it out of the way or have a Brexit deal that's more favorable to Britain. And him and his allies in the Tories have been a little cagey about exactly what kind of deal they would prefer. Uh, but in general, they at least want to get rid of the so-called backstop deal in the Brexit agreement that Theresa May negotiated with the European union. Now, if you don't know what the backstop agreement is, do you maybe remember this Nero? No. Well, basically one of the sticking points in the ongoing negotiations is the border between the UK and Ireland. Um, Maybe for those maybe not up on their geography, the U.K. technically does have a land border with Ireland uh, on the island of Ireland. Uh, Britain has a little piece of territory called Northern Ireland in the northern part of uh, the Irish island. And uh, so the U.K. shares the island with Ireland, the actual Republic of Ireland. So right now, the U.K. and Ireland are in the EU and they basically have an open borders agreement. And that works out really well because part of a security deal that was signed between local rebels uh, called basically the IRA. It's technically the new IRA or the real IRA or some damn thing. There's a whole bunch of different branches of the Irish Republican Army. But uh, basically insurgents who want Northern Ireland to become part of the Republic of Ireland uh, made a deal with locals and the British government in which there would be peace in exchange for local government and certain other concessions, among them uh, the guarantee of an open border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. Now, so long as they're both in the European Union, that's not a big deal. But if the UK leaves the European Union, uh, the Good Friday Agreement, as it's called, is brought into question. So the European Union, uh, in order to represent the interests of its member state, Ireland, which is staying in the European Union, really wants to lobby hard uh, to honor the Good Friday Agreement by making sure that whatever happens, there's still an open border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. But uh, people who want to leave the European Union, and in particular, people who want a hard Brexit, as it's called, a stark, clean break from relations with the European Union, those people are much more skeptical. Now, in general, everybody's on board with maintaining the Good Friday Agreement somehow, It's not entirely clear how different parties would do it, Uh, but in order to ensure that uh, if over the course of the two year transition period that's going to ensue as part of Theresa May's deal with the European Union, that would be triggered once the UK technically fully leaves the European Union, if there is no agreement during that two-year transition vis-a-vis the Irish border issue, the backstop agreement is the emergency backup agreement that would be implemented in that contingency. So it's not guaranteed to happen, but it's a just-in-case option uh, so that the Irish can be fully confident that there will still be an open border no matter how the negotiations regarding Britain's future trade relations with the European Union pan out. So, that's controversial for people who want a hard Brexit, people want a hard separation for the European Union, uh, because they don't like the idea that people who don't want a hard Brexit might use that backstop agreement as a kind of de facto uh, new agreement with the European Union. Keep in mind that for those, again, not familiar with the transition period, Theresa May pretty much negotiated fully the terms of the UK's exit from the European Union. That deal is already settled. Um, But part of that is that two-year transition in which the UK will kind of de facto still be a part of the European Union, uh, but will technically be out. And that two-year transition period is just to give both parties time to negotiate some kind of free trade deal that will determine the extent of economic relations between them. Now, some people want to largely maintain the current set of economic relations, Um, They can't have it, you know, they can't have their cake and eat it too. They can't leave it and maintain their full rights and privileges as a member of the EU, but they can retain a lot of them, uh, perhaps, if they push for them. But the people who want a hard Brexit don't really want to do that so much. So that's a sticking point. So that's what the two-year transition would kind of center around, that negotiation. Uh, But if that doesn't result in a any kind of coherent agreement after two years, the backstop agreement is the default agreement that would be used. And the hard Brexit people are afraid that uh, the soft Brexit people might just delay the negotiations interminably until the end of that two-year period and just use that in order to default to that backstop. So if there is no backstop to default to, then the leverage is more with the hard Brexit folks in the British government. And they might find it easier then to kind of get their way in the two-year transition negotiation. So the other thing to consider also is that uh, hard brexit politicians and voters in the UK are more comfortable with a uh full brexit basically that's a uh, I forget I think maybe hard brexit is the term I should be using well the hard brexit in this context then <laughs> this is confusing I know so I apologize I'm not the best at this Basically, a hard Brexit in this context is one where there is no deal at all, and the UK just walks away from the European Union uh, without any deal, the so-called new deal, the, sorry, the so-called no-deal Brexit. Uh, and that could that would probably cause a lot of problems because, uh, you know, the two-year transition is meant to ease the way for UK businesses as well as European businesses to try to see what the eventual trade agreement will look like and then adjust accordingly. But if there's a no-deal Brexit, then that just comes as a hard negative external shock uh, to both economies, both the EU economy and the UK economy. So a lot of people are averse to that, but uh, for the hard Brexit crowd, they see that as a good option because it means that they have maximum power to set their own policy. They don't have to make any compromises with the European Union vis-a-vis regulations, trade policy, etc. They'll be completely free to make separate trade agreements and set their own regulations and laws according to their own preferences without having to consult European partners. So a no deal Brexit is attractive to the hard Brexit crowd for that reason. And so there are threats that uh, if they don't get what they're seeking from the European Union, as far as the removal of the backstop agreement from the Brexit deal, uh, if they don't, that is a credible threat for them uh, because they hypothetically wanting uh, or at least tolerating a no deal Brexit would actually walk away uh, with the no deal brexit, if they don't get what they want again, the removal of the backstop so that's kind of where we are where we were uh Boris Johnson is in that hard brexit crowd, sort of he's been pretty ambiguous about whether he kind of wants a deal or is a no deal brexiteer or just where exactly he is on that spectrum, but nominally, he said that he wants to get a better deal and uh My suspicion is that he probably just wants to remove the backstop almost symbolically, basically to pander to his supporters in the Tory party who are really hard Brexiteers, but otherwise would be okay with the Brexit deal as it is now. I don't know that there's really a lot that he's come out and said he really wants to change in the Brexit deal proper as opposed to just the backstop deal. So the question was, is Boris Johnson going to push hard for a no-deal Brexit or is he just going to pretend to push hard for a no-deal Brexit in order to seem to have more leverage in the negotiation with the European Union? The idea being that uh, if the British government seems like it doesn't want a hard Brexit or doesn't seem to know what it wants, as it frequently has over the past few years... Then the European Union can kind of just wait. They don't. The European Union doesn't really feel in that in those cases like it has to make concessions, and that uh, it can just kind of wait out the British government and eventually get its preferred deal, which is the Brexit deal Theresa May signed with the backstop deal. Now that said, uh, if the British government comes out and signals strongly that it can and will settle for a no-deal Brexit if it doesn't get what it wants, it's relatively more likely to get concessions from the European Union. Still relatively unlikely, I would argue, given that the Europeans are more interested in maintaining the solidarity of the European Union than they are in sacrificing one member's uh, interests for the sake of the whole, in which case the whole project could come into question. Um, that precedent there is something they've been really trying to avoid for the past 10 years. You last saw it in the Eurozone crisis uh, when solidarity was demanded in the case of uh, the Greek issue, the Greek debt crisis. And uh, there even came a point when the Greeks were threatening to default on the debt if they didn't get uh, a restructuring of the debt. And uh, they believed that the European Union would not allow them to default on the debt and would agree to restructure because it didn't want to lose all the money it had spent on the bailout of Greece and and its debt in the the previous Eurozone crisis. But of course, uh, as history showed, um, the European Union ended up calling their bluff uh, because uh, doing otherwise would have set a bad precedent for the health of the monetary union and the European economy writ large. That's a whole other conversation we could get into. It's an interesting one, but uh, I'm just trying to illustrate that the European Union uh, will prioritize precedent that could potentially threaten the integrity of the European Union over any single member's interest, be that Ireland or, uh, say, the Netherlands and its strong economic ties to Britain, et cetera. So it's pretty unlikely that the European Union is going to really give significant concessions, uh, in particular with regard to the backstop deal, which, again, it, it sees as being in the clear interests of Ireland, uh, the principal uh, party of interest within the European Union vis-a-vis Brexit, uh, at least from the perspective of a lot of the European Union's main leadership. So that's a really long-winded description just to kind of review uh, where we are. So because of this credibility issue on the part of the British government, Boris Johnson has been using, uh, sending signals to the European Union that he's not afraid of a no-deal Brexit. And again, he's trying to do that to build British leverage in the negotiation to try to put more pressure on the European Union to get rid of the backstop deal. Now, the problem with uh, those threats that he's making, those signals, is that they're sufficiently credible that British opposition groups who don't want a hard Brexit, certainly not a no-deal Brexit, uh, are fighting back really hard, which, of course, undermines Johnson's government's position on the issue. The Europeans can note that while Johnson himself may not be afraid of a no-deal Brexit, There's so much opposition in Britain's parliament that he could never actually do it, and hence his threats are not actually credible. So that's led to a big contest over the past few weeks in order to illustrate which side has the more leverage within parliament. Johnson's hope is that he can win that procedural battle and then eventually either push the European Union into giving a concession or uh, going out with a no-deal Brexit, which for a lot of people in his party that are pro-Brexit is an acceptable outcome. And even for a lot of people that don't like it, would be acceptable at this point, because they just want to get the damn thing over with. That's also not an uncommon sentiment at this point. It's been dragged, it's been dragged, the issue has been dragged out much longer than anybody had ever intended. So there are some people that just want to put this thing out of its misery, so to speak. But there's strong opposition to that uh, in other quarters. The Labor Party kind of, sort of, is against it. That's that's a conversation of itself not everybody in labor is uh, anti-brexit but in general the leadership is trying to use the issue to criticize the conservative government and try to hold a vote of no confidence at some point in which case a new election would be called and potentially a new labor government could be formed if they were to win enough votes but everybody a lot of other major parties in uh, the british government are also opposed to no deal the liberal democrats in particular the snp that is to say the scottish national party Uh, So there's a lot of, uh, and also some rebels within the conservative party as well. Those are the significant players there. So the principal news over the past couple weeks then has been uh, this procedural battle. Again, uh, the different factions are trying to use uh, the respective powers of parliament and uh, in the prime minister's case, the prime minister's office to try to pull one over on the other. Uh, in Johnson's case, he said specifically he drew a red line that Britain would leave the European Union uh, by the October deadline. I think October thirty first uh, was the most recent deadline agreed between the two parties when the UK would have to leave. And uh, he's trying to send that use that as a signal that he's not afraid of No Deal Brexit by saying, you know, whatever happens in the negotiation, we're going to leave here. <clears throat> so because he's done that. Parliament and opponents in Parliament have been trying very hard to force the Johnson government uh, to agree to an extension to basically push that deadline down the road uh, so that further negotiations can be had. So I'm just going to very briefly here run you through some of the, uh, again, the procedural battle that's been unfolding here. Um, I already kind of outlined the Johnson strategy here. Um, Johnson's opposition in Parliament uh, had a problem vis-a-vis agreeing on a coherent strategy, because, again, a lot of people had different ideas about what to do. One of the problems was uh, a problem over agreeing to a vote of no confidence. Um, a lot of actors, like the Liberal Democrats and SNP, just wanted to vote on a bill forcing the government to demand an ex- to request, rather, an extension on the deadline from the European Union. But the Labour Party, under Jeremy Corbyn, wanted to push for a vote of no confidence, uh, And that was kind of a non-starter because a lot of actors who were afraid of no deal Brexit are also afraid of Jeremy Corbyn becoming prime minister. For those of you not familiar with British politics, Jeremy Corbyn is, I don't want to say far left, but he's probably the most far left of any labor leader in modern political in modern Britain's political history. And so there's a lot of concern on the part of a lot of critics of Corbyn, even within the Labour Party in some cases. And uh, so there's not entirely a lot of support for a vote of no confidence at this point. So there was a hang up in the negotiations between the different groups, including Tory rebels, about uh, what particular strategy they would use. Uh, Again, Jeremy Corbyn and his supporters in the Labor Party pushing for the vote of no confidence option and opponents um, pushing just for the bill extension. But eventually they did agree to a plan. But I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, while that negotiation was happening amongst the opposition, one of the things Boris Johnson did was uh, introduce an immigration bill that would have, let me see, let me make sure I get this right. It was meant to prevent current European Union free movement provisions from automatically carrying over into the UK, uh, or rather into UK law once the UK leaves the European Union. Uh, one of the big items of negotiation in the Brexit negotiations has been what happens to Europeans living in the U.K. uh, once the U.K. leaves the European Union. You know, since the U.K. is part of the European Union, they currently have legal protections, but presumably they would lose those if the U.K. left. So the European Union wants them to maintain rights and privileges, uh, or at least wants the ones who are living in the U.K. now to retain rights and privileges that they currently enjoy. Um, The U.K., has different ideas about that, depending on who you talk to. Some people want to carry them over. Some people want them removed entirely. Some people want something in between. Again, that's its own thing, basically. Uh, But the immigration bill was meant to prevent EU law from automatically carrying over if there was, say, a no-deal Brexit. So that was seen as Johnson government uh, trying to send a signal that, again, it's not afraid of that no-deal Brexit, and it wants to illustrate that by wanted to illustrate that by presenting that bill, but they actually ended up withdrawing it because they were afraid that opposition in parliament might attach a writer to the bill uh, that would force them to seek an extension. So they sent the signal by introducing the bill, but they encountered parliamentary opposition that made them sufficiently concerned that they ended up withdrawing it, which kind of undermined the original purpose. But again, that's just to illustrate how the Johnson government was trying to send a signal to the European Union. Now, the next thing that happened was that the Johnson government uh, issued a proposal to resolve the Irish border issue, which was not an entirely serious one, since I don't think there's any chance in hell the Irish government is going to say yes. But basically, the proposal was for the European Union uh, to exempt the Republic of Ireland from its rules and regulations, correspondent to being a member of the European Union, temporarily, so that Ireland could, again, temporarily join some kind of new economic union with the uk until a new agreement that is to say trade agreement could be agreed to between the european union and the uk and presumably a part of that potential economic union between the uk and ireland would involve maintaining that open border so that issue would be resolved but at the cost of ireland basically de facto separating albeit temporarily from the european union you can see why ireland and the european union would not be big fans of this plan so I don't really think it was an entirely serious proposal, but again, I think it's just part of the Johnson government strategy of confronting the European Union and sending strong signals that it's not afraid of that no-deal Brexit. So after that, uh, the opposition made a move, which is to say that they publicly announced that they had reached formally an agreement by which to prevent a potential New Deal Brexit from happening and in turn undermining the Johnson government's leverage in the negotiations. Uh, The Johnson government responded to that by proroguing Parliament. And this is something that we had actually talked about uh, a month or two ago. It was something that some people were afraid he might try uh, as a kind of desperation move. Basically, uh, the Prime Minister can schedule what's called a Queen's Speech. I hope I'm getting that right. Uh, And in the Queen's Speech, basically, she talks, I don't know, something about legislation. I didn't read into it too deeply. It's not really important per se. What's important is that Uh, part of a queen's speech is that parliament is suspended uh, for some period of time before the speech. Now, normally that's a couple of days, maybe seven days. uh, But in this case, the Johnson government is going to suspend parliament for something like 23 days, I think it was, which is unusually long. So clearly he's using that procedural rule that the prime minister can request a queen's speech and then prorogue parliament for a certain amount of time in order to shut down Parliament. Now, he can't prevent them from doing anything vis-a-vis Brexit, and he can't shut them down immediately. It's going to start, I think, next week or something, when they'll be suspended, and they'll come back before the Brexit deadline. Uh, the point of the prorogue was not to shut down Parliament completely. Rather, it was to give them less time in which to organize some kind of alternative or pass some kind of alternative legislation that would force him to seek an extension. So that was a big power play on the, car- on the count on the part, rather, of Boris Johnson. So the opposition responded by quickly organizing a vote in Parliament to take control of the schedule, which is the first step to passing an extension bill. Uh, So that was a pretty successful effort on their part, because it required them to move much more quickly than they were originally planning. Uh, Boris Johnson, in turn, reacted to that by requesting an election which is unusual because opposition parties in British political history almost always accept an offer by the ruling government to hold an election because generally you'll do better uh, if you hold a new new election. So in an unusual move, the opposition actually rejected that call for a new election. And uh, the reason they did that is because they were concerned uh, that parliament would be shut down until the election could happen and that the Johnson government would set the date for the election after the Brexit deadline, in which case Parliament wouldn't be able to do anything to stop him from potentially forcing a no-deal Brexit. So in order to avoid that, because they didn't trust him not to do that, uh, they rejected that call for an election and decided to focus on passing the extension bill first. And I think Labour and Jeremy Corbyn were okay with that because they think that they're just going to get a vote of no confidence later on anyway, so it's not really a missed opportunity for them per se. And there's a pretty good chance there's going to be a vote of no confidence sooner or later in the next couple of months at some point. There's just too much tension right now. Um, maybe it doesn't happen, but that seems to be something a lot of people are predicting. Uh, so let's see. So the election was rejected. And then the next thing was the extension bill was actually passed uh, by Parliament. So technically, the Johnson government is on the hook right now to request an extension on the Brexit deadline from the European Union. And as you can imagine, He's not entirely happy with that. And so one of the interesting things, uh, and there's been some noise from the administration about this up till now, is that they might just ignore it, which is pretty much unheard of in British political history. That would be a significant breach of the law and norms. And the parliament has already threatened the Johnson government uh, with a legal action, basically. They're going to take him to court if he signals that he's just not going to ignore Uh, the extension bill. And hypothetically, he could do that, uh, even if it's not technically legal. If he just ignores it, then he could take the UK out of the European Union on October the 31st, and uh, probably whatever legal action is taken will not be completed by that time. So that could be a significant power move on his part, albeit one not entirely legal. So a little bit banana republic, but if that is an important objective then that would be one way to do it, and it would certainly force the issue. And it might just be that those rumors that they might ignore the bill are just another form of signaling to the European Union that they're not afraid of a no-deal Brexit, but uh, again, given how much opposition there is and given what a dramatic move that would be, I doubt the European Union would consider it significantly credible. And again, even if they did, I don't know that it would really be enough to budge them from their current position on the backstop. But that's the current thing to watch. Will the Johnson government just blow off parliament and create a minor constitutional crisis in doing so?
0: On today's episode of Britain Tries Government, Boris Johnson reaches for the book of things you should not do in government, <laughs> and he does all of the things. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well,
0: that basically seemed like the big picture of what you've been talking about.
1: Well, again, it's a major procedural battle between two factions that have very strong positions. You know, the Brexit crowd feels very strongly that the UK would be better off outside the European Union and wants maximum sovereignty, you know, wants maximum discretionary power on its own policymaking. Uh, but then the anti-Brexit crowd feels just as strongly that the, Euro- that the UK economy would be significantly damaged by cutting ties with its largest trading partner. And that the UK's interest would be best served by either staying in the European Union, preferably, or at the very least, maintaining strong economic ties. And at this point, there's not really enough support for another referendum, which would be very controversial. Uh, So the two factions at this point, given the deadlock between them, are having to resort to procedural bullshit, basically. There's not really anything left. There's only so many different things you can do in terms of coalition building and negotiating at this point. They're just using procedure as a weapon to try to get leverage over each other so that they can have their way on Brexit. So right now it looks like Parliament is winning, but Johnson has the ultimate trump card, which is that he has the executive branch. So we'll see what he does with that. But that's the update. That's what's been going on. Lots of Brexit drama over in the UK.
0: Yeah, I think the, I'm not super up to snuff on all the technical terminology, but I believe the technical term for the situation is a clusterfuck.
1: (laughs) Pretty much. It kind of has been for a while. You know, that's, it goes all the way back to the original referendum, which was only, you know, the conservative party only campaigned on the referendum because they didn't think it would actually pass. You know, that was the original sin, so to speak, way back in 2015, I think it was, when Cameron was running and uh, he promised a Brexit referendum. But he and a lot of other people in the Conservative Party were not really, didn't really think it would actually pass. It was mostly just an empty campaign promise, basically. And then it did. And so nobody was prepared for that because, again, not only the Conservatives, but everybody else. And the political establishment just kind of assumed it would fail. And Britain, Britain's government has been basically playing catch-up ever since. Just trying to barely keep up with the schedule that was set. Man. So, go
0: ahead. I was just going to say what a heckin' sequence of events this has been.
1: Yeah. It's uh, certainly been a major issue in Europe for the past 10-some years. Well couple of years really since 2016 but for the decade it's going to be one of the major stories hard to believe the decade's almost over 2019
0: wow well i hope we all learned our lesson everyone don't hold votes for things (laughs) go really bad no we talked about it back when it first happened and one of the things that I think is an important thing to note regarding this referendum as opposed to a lot of other things that people could vote on. Voting is nice because you get to field a public opinion and things like that, but the problem with this one was it was so close to 50-50 mm. that it really just I can I think tore the country in half in yeah. terms of what they're trying to do and it also makes it super hard to agree because if Brexit was a 70-30 mm. then everything would have moved along way faster and we'd probably be done with it like a long time ago. Yeah, probably. So yeah, that that starting point of having almost a 50-50 vote means that there's just no traction in any direction. They're just spinning their wheels.
1: Yeah, that's the trouble with referenda. You know, they can, if there's clear support for a given policy, you don't need a referendum to begin with. Uh, but if you do, but if it's close, having the referendum basically just creates a public record that illustrates the division it doesn't really give a lot of political leverage to one side or the other when it's close like that no matter what happens a huge part of the country is going to be ripshit pissed no matter what happens either the anti-brexit folks or the brexit folks at this point are going to be very disappointed Mm. and that's just not really good for the political health of any given country
0: Yep, it's a lose-lose situation, basically.
1: To be fair, the original vote on whether the UK should join the European Union way back in the 70s, back when it was still the European Economic Community, I think that was pretty close, too, if memory serves. If we have any British listeners, maybe they can correct me on that. So part of the reason it's been a running issue in the UK politics is because the original uh, referendum was itself pretty close. And it's just been kind of a running problem within the Conservative Party in particular. That's part of what brought Margaret Thatcher down, if I remember correctly. A lot of anti-European Union folks in the Conservative Party didn't really appreciate her position on the issue and threw her out eventually, replacing her with John Major, I think it was. Something to that effect. Again, please correct me if I'm wrong on that. But then, of course, if... The UK does leave with only fifty-one percent of the population supporting Brexit. It does what does that mean for the future? Does that mean that you know the pro the anti Brexit people become the new insurgents in British politics, and it becomes a running issue with them, where they're constantly challenging Britain's status outside of the European Union? I mean, it's just not clear that this issue is really ever going to die—at least not anytime soon. It seems like one of those intractable issues that just gonna that's just going to have legs for a very long period of time.
0: It would be nice if there was a way to assess the situation sort of academically so that they could find a few solutions that could be agreed upon and they could make some compromises and whatnot. Because it seems like there's just so much symbolism involved and that's what it's about. It's about the symbolism of are we independent as the United Kingdom or are we basically just doing whatever the EU tells us and getting the bad end of that deal? Mm-hmm. where neither of those are quantified statements. Those are more ideological mm-hmm. symbolic statements where it makes you feel a certain way about the, the place that you occupy in Europe, which is silly. But then again, we are primates. So that's an important reminder there. Mm-hmm. This is complicated stuff. And the tribe size now is much larger than it was in, and- History and prehistory, so
1: mm-hmm. well we'll see what comes with comes of it. I would guess that the u k would probably end up maintaining relatively strong relations with the European Union, but probably outside of it. Most of the political establishment seems to be kind of on board at this point with leaving the European Union if only to respect the referendum. And there is some support for holding another referendum but There's kind of a feeling amongst political elites that that would be anti-democratic, especially given that one of the big criticisms of the European Union and uh, pro-European people in particular is that they basically just keep holding referendums until they get the one they want, until they get the outcome they want. You know, that the European Union always seems to continue to centralize and gain power regardless of what opponents think. So there's a sense that Uh, holding another referendum on Brexit would just kind of play into that fear and create even more consternation and tension politically.
0: Yeah, because the last referendum was so good. (laughs) Yeah. Episode two.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it'll be much more exciting in that case.
0: There's a question in the chat
1: that relates to this about how
0: Brexit relates to the US, because this is kind of a UK versus EU uh, set of decisions that are being made. The United States, were not part of the European Union. We're kind of our own thing. And we are overall, I think, a close ally of Britain. Hmm. So does that change anything for us?
1: So one of the criticisms in the U.S., amongst conservatives anyway, uh, was that the U.K. was sort of the U.S.'s man on the inside, that the U.K.'s interests aligned more with the U.S. on a number of issues, and that by having the U.K. in the European Union... Uh, the U.K. could kind of represent common Anglo-American interests within the European Union decision-making structure and therefore give more preference to, uh, well, give more leverage to uh, U.S. and U.K. preferences. Uh, So in that sense, it was kind of in the U.S.'s interest for the U.K. to stay in the European Union, if only to kind of steer them away or at least towards uh, certain issues or at least a certain perspective on certain issues that were, seen as being in the interest of the united states so in that sense there was uh some connection there but really not much overall Uh, at this point the only real connection is a potential free trade deal between the uk and us uh, which some people in the uk are kind of sort of excited about i guess some of the pro brexit folks are really gung-ho about free trade deals with the rest of the world you know they like to say that most of the economic growth in the world is projected Uh, to be outside Europe. And so they want to try to make free trade deals with them to try to kind of tap that. But it's not really easy. (laughs) I think they kind of underestimate that. Free trade deals take a lot of time to sign. Sorry?
0: uh, For a technical question, what is a free trade deal and why don't they already have them with a bunch of other countries?
1: So in order for the UK to sign a free trade deal uh, with other countries, they would right now, as part of the European Union, they would have to get the European Union's basically permission first. Uh, right now, the, the UK's principal free trade agreement is with the rest of Europe in the form of being in the European Union because being in the European Union means you have regulatory alignment. You know, Everybody kind of has the same sets of regulations in order to remove non-tariff barriers to trade because uh, sometimes countries use regulations to prevent uh, other countries from trading in their economy or to protect native industries. So the European Union deals with that by trying to harmonize regulations across different countries. And uh, of course, there's a de facto customs union in place. So there's a low to zero customs duties applied to imports from European Union member states. Now, what that means is that uh, if the UK were to sign a free trade to deal agreement outside of the European Union, uh, it could be that that country, that third party country, let's say the US. You know, if the UK signed a free trade deal with the US right now, uh, a lot of goods uh, that right now are too expensive, perhaps prohibitively expensive because of European Union tariffs could be bought by British people and then sold in the European Union, bypassing those common tariffs. Now, that's Mm -hmm. not necessarily a bad thing, economically speaking, but that's big picture economics. Politically speaking, uh, you want to have the permission of your trade partners before potentially opening up the common market to outside competition. It's supposed to be a community decision, not one country's decision. So right now, the UK, in effect, cannot sign free trade deals with other countries while it's in the European Union because free trade, free, free trade deals uh, have to be signed by the European community as a whole and not by single members. So the European Union at the, at the uh, EU Nation, what what would the supranational level has to negotiate free trade deals. So for example, the EU has been negotiating, I think, a trade deal with the Brazil, or with Mercosur more accurately, a free trade group in South America. And so that deal is going to apply to all European Union member states and is going to have it's going to have to require the assent of all EU member states, but that's probably going to happen. So that'll probably be a continent wide free trade deal. The UK and specifically Pro-Brexit voters uh, don't want to have to do that. Don't want to have to continue to. Don't want to continue that arrangement. Um, part of the reason is that they want to set their regulations differently than the European Union standard. In general, conservatives in the UK and generally pro-Brexit folks tend to be a little more conservative. I think. Again, correct me if I'm wrong on that, chat. Uh, but in general, Brexiteers tend to be more conservative, and they want a they want less regulation, a more liberal economy, that is to say classical liberalism for the Americans listening, uh, classically liberal economy with more laissez-faire policies. And uh, right now they can't entirely do that because of EU uh, restrictions, basically. They, they can't get consensus for that at the EU level. And so there's limits to how much they can do that. If they leave the European Union, then they can do it as much as they want. You know, it doesn't matter. And uh, that also frees them up to sign those different trade deals with different countries that they can't do right now because they don't have to worry about getting the EU's permission. So that's the sort of convoluted answer to the question, what are free trade deals and why doesn't the UK have a lot of them right now?
0: Well, I think that helps me understand a little bit why the pro-Brexit people don't like being tied to the EU, at least on an ideological and kind of um, the spirit of the people level. Mm-hmm. Because it sounds like the EU makes a lot of decisions as a group, and having to ask permission before you as a country do stuff, I think, feels like you lost some of your own sovereignty in that regard. So I can see why they would be upset. The, the thing that makes it really hard is you're trying to find the best solution for the entire country. And some of the stuff we've talked about before was how travel works for people who work in the UK or EU going from country to country if they have some... Uh, work that they have to do in another country? How does that relate? And with the way that the UK is involved with the EU right now, that's a very easy and streamlined process where a lot of your stuff just works traveling throughout the region. Mm -hmm. So for those people, leaving the EU sucks a whole bunch. But on the uh, ideological level, having something like the EU decide stuff for you or prevent you as a country from doing stuff, I can see why they would be for that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's actually something you can also see um, on the far left, interestingly. Um, obviously, the far right and a lot of you know, center-right conservatives are very pro-Brexit for those reasons. But on the far left, there's some people who are pro-Brexit because they want to change uh, British government regulations to be even more strict than the European Union standard. And that's actually one of the weird aspects of the current age of European politics. People on the far right see the European Union as a vector for socialism, control, regulation. At the same time, people on the far left see the European Union as a neoliberal institution that embodies the values of laissez-faire economics and uh, light regulation in contrast to what they would prefer.
0: Well, because if you think about it, the EU is a collection of a whole bunch of different states. Mm-hmm. So the political orientation of the EU is sort of going to be the average of that mm-hmm. based on the the strength of each of the states, yeah. obviously. But yeah, that's going to be kind of center relative to the EU standard. So I can see why people on the right and the left in the UK would feel like that uh, removes a lot of their voice. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's the trade-off you make in the European Union. You know, you have to cede some sovereignty in order to be a part of this natu- supra-national institution, the European Union. But in exchange, barriers to trade are way, way lower than they would be otherwise. You know, if you're a business owner in the UK or, you know, a given country in Europe, uh, there's a lot of things that you don't have to worry about in terms of, you know, tariffs, customs, border checks, uh, differences in regulations, etc, because the European Union goes out of its way to try to go try to remove those barriers as much as possible, so that paves the way for a lot more economic integration uh, than there would be if those barriers were still in place in, to- in total it 's a net economic gain for the continent, even if economic integration hasn 't happened as tightly and as to the extent that a lot of people would have liked. Um, it still added a lot of value uh, to Europe's economy as a whole. And so that's why a lot of economic actors, businesses, and whatnot are a little bit concerned at all the Euro skepticism in the EU. Um, Certainly there are criticisms to be made of the EU as an institution and some of the decisions it's made. But uh, overall, it's been a pretty net positive in terms of, one, regional security. By tying everybody together, you make it less likely that there's a conflict. But it also helps and again lubricating trade and providing more opportunities and of course free movement is a major achievement Uh, the free movement of labor within the continent uh, the so-called Schengen zone that's a pretty significant achievement for europe given that you know just 50 60 years ago that kind of tore itself apart you know over uh national identity and nationalism and you know regional rivalries so, all told, it's not only a symbolic achieve; it's not only an economic achievement, but a symbolic achievement and a national security achievement. So, it, it brings value. I know I sound like I'm shilling for the European Union, but I'm just recounting these are the arguments for the institution that people argue justify the loss of some sovereignty. So, that's the trade-off you make. Obviously, a lot of people are not comfortable with that trade-off. You can see that not only in the UK, but also places like Hungary, Poland, um, the Czech Republic or Czechia, whatever I'm supposed to call it now. They changed their name technically a few years ago. Um, Czechia, if you like, had been sort of Britain's ally in the European Union. There's a lot of issues that uh, the UK took a kind of contrarian tone on uh, that they thought gave the European Union too much power, You know, moved it too far in the direction of federalization. And generally, the Czech Republic was uh, on Britain's side in a lot of those disputes. So certainly there's more than just uh, Britain, more than just people in Britain who are skeptical of the EU. Uh, Mm -hmm. Obviously, the Hungarian government doesn't really have um, I would argue doesn't have as good a set of reasons for being critical, but that's a whole other discussion that ties into Viktor Orban. Uh, Poland is a different, again, a whole other discussion. The Law and Justice Party under Kaczynski kind of has a distinctive perspective on it, tying into a very nationalist sovereignty oriented foreign policy that uh, that he pushes. You kinda can't blame Eastern Europeans for being skeptical of a large institution having too much power over them. You know, for a long time they were lorded over by what happened before. Yeah. Yeah, they've been there before with the Soviet Union, so they're a little wary. So I don't think you can really blame them for that. But there's a little bit of self interest too going on there at the individual level by certain nationalist politicians. You know, in the case of uh, Kaczynski, you know, it's partly just personal enmity. And then in the case of Viktor Orban, it's ideology. You know, Orban has described himself as an illiberal Democrat, I guess. You know, he's a fan of illiberalism in so much as that's a thing. Uh, If you're not familiar with the term illiberalism or illiberal democracy, that's kind of a term used to describe democracy that is not liberal, basically. You know, democracy is just rule of the majority. Liberal. Liberal democracy is the rule of the majority, but with constraints on the majority, generally in the form of a constitution which outlines certain rights and privileges that cannot be breached, even if a majority of the population wants to. So certain political ideologies and politicians in Europe do not really have a strong affinity for liberal democracy. They like democracy, but not necessarily liberal democracy. And one of the big issues in European politics over the past 10 years has been what to do about the emergence of illiberal ideologies like those of Viktor Orban in Hungary, and uh, to a lesser degree, I would argue, Law and Justice Party in Poland. To say nothing of general Euroscepticism in places like France, Britain, Italy, etc., and Germany even. I think somebody asked a question in Discord last time, basically to that effect. We can kind of get into that later. But uh, I'm just illustrating here that Euro skepticism is not exclusively a Brexit thing. That's also something that you can kind of see in the rest of Europe. Nobody else has gone to the extreme of actually wanting to leave the European Union, certainly not holding a referendum on it. Uh, but it, there is some sentiment to that effect. So it's not an isolated case, basically. Mm -hmm. anyway that was a tangent i'm not even sure how i got onto that
0: we did get some confirmation in the chat that the official name is still the czech republic but they want to be called czechia kind of as france is called france as opposed to the republic of france yeah just a a shortcut
1: yeah that's kind i think that's what i read back when they did it but they'd been called czech republic for so long it feels a little weird to use czechia I think that's, I think Czechia is actually the name they've traditionally used in the Czech Republic. Uh, So it's kind of just presenting that as the official name for the rest of the world. I'm not sure why they went with Czech Republic in the first place. They used to be, um, do you remember Czechoslovakia? Yep. Yeah, for a long time. That's what it
0: was, I think, when we were in middle school and stuff. Saw it on the
1: map as Czechoslovakia. In middle school? I think it was. When were you in middle school? Is that wrong? But it would have been like the Mm -hmm. 90s. You were in middle school, right?
0: That may have been elementary school then.
1: Elementary school. I don't think they actually broke up until 92. I want to say. Chat might have to correct me on that. I want to say 1992, but I could be wrong. So it was a pretty long time ago. You would have been pretty young. Czechoslovakia. That was the... um, the country was kind of formed originally out of the Austro-Hungarian Empire when it fell apart after World War I. And uh, Czechoslovakia actually was one of the only, I think, central slash eastern European countries to actually form a relatively stable democracy in the interwar period, the 1920s and 1930s. And there was a lot of angst in uh, Western Europe and the United States after World War II when it kind of fell to the communists wasn't a whole lot. Anybody could actually do about it. You know, nobody wanted world war three with the Soviet union. Uh, but it was seen as a tragedy that, uh, you know, the one shining example of liberal democracy in that part of Europe had kind of fallen to totalitarianism. You know, people were pretty upset about that. Not just in Czechoslovakia, <laughs> obviously they were upset, but it was always kind of an awkward arrangement because the western half of the country was ethnically czech and the eastern half was ethnically slovakian i think in general they got along okay but uh, one of the trends in the late 1980s was ethnic nationalism you know as communist authority withered and uh, communist governments opened up political space nationalism and nationalist ideologies were one of the big political movements to fill the vacuum and so that, rep- that manifested in Czechoslovakia as a separatist push by, I think, both of them at the same time. I guess I'm not too familiar with the specifics of the Velvet Divorce, as it was called. I think, I think that's correct. And the result is that Slovakia and uh, Czechia, if you like, became independent of each other, splitting Czechoslovakia in half in doing so. It's unfortunate wow. they had a very strong Olympic team, as I recall.
0: <laughs> why do we need to be as one? Well, for sports, that's why. <laughs> oh, okay. It's a good cause.
1: Anyway, that's an unprompted history of Czechoslovakia. In summary, very brief. Nice. <clears throat> so that's Brexit. I'm not sure how long that took. That feels like a while.
0: Took about 30 minutes if we're not counting the peripheral stuff that we also addressed.
1: Ah, Gotcha. Okay. Well, do we have, do you want more? We've still got. There's
0: there's more Brexit?
1: No, not not more Brexit, but just the other. Are you ready for the rest of the, the notes that we have? For the past, oh days. hell
0: yeah! I thought you were like, dude, we've got four hours of Brexit. Let's go.
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> nothing so nothing so traumatizing. Yeah, no, that's that's Brexit in a thirty-minute nutshell. I guess. I guess I could. I guess I should try more to be more concise.
0: No, it's fine. We have we have the time. I think it's good to get into the weeds a little bit.
1: Okay. So, let me see. So the next thing as far as Europe over the past couple of weeks has been Italy and you know, Italy has kind of been the focus of some attention in Europe for the past year and change, basically since the populist government was elected. Um, Europe, I mean, Italy is not unfamiliar with populists. You know, their politicians tend to be eccentric. Silvio Berlusconi was leader for a long time and he's sort of, um, I don't know, Rupert Murdoch with libido basically in a sense. You know, Berlusconi owned a vast media empire, kind of like Rupert Murdoch. And Berlusconi was pretty conservative. Well, he is pretty conservative. He's still alive. But he also did a lot of weird eccentric things. You know, he had all these bunga bunga parties, and as he called them, and involving lots of uh, hookers and booze, pretty much. You know, the uh, press had a field day with him, basically. He was quite the character. Uh, he finally got pushed out of power, which is probably for the best in the grand scheme of things. Uh, but Italy again, just that's just an example of Italian politics being a little bit colorful, if you like. Now, that wouldn't necessarily be a big problem, you know. For a long time, the attitude in Europe was that Italy wasn't that important. Basically, you know, not not to belittle Italy, but the Italian government was not that powerful and couldn't really throw its weight around too much. Obviously, Italy has a large economy and is an important country diplomatically within the European Union, but in general, Germany, France, and the UK were sort of the main players in the European Union, and Italy kind of played backup. Partly, that's just because the Italian government was so dysfunctional. I think Italy's government uh, had some ridiculously large number of different prime ministers over the past 50 years, in particular during the Cold War. Italian Italy was kind of known for dysfunctional government for a long time, until relatively recently, although they're kind of working to reverse that, it seems. But what happened last year, I think it was what a year or two ago, is that uh, establishment parties lost out to some insurgent populist political parties, populist for lack of a better word, that's sort of a general description. One of them was a kind of left populist group called the Five Star Party which was led by a former comedian, if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, the other party was the League, which used to be called the Northern League and was actually originally a separatist party that wanted Northern Italy to break off and form its own country. Uh, those two parties... Well, the Northern League changed its name to the League and just became more of a populist conservative party. I think in particular they were focused on immigration. I think that was their big issue. So Five Star and League uh, ran and got most of the votes, not enough to form governments by themselves, but they negotiated with each other and formed this weird left-right populist coalition, which I kind of suspected would be unstable from the start, given that they have very different perspectives on uh, what kind of direction Italy should take. But they made it work for a while, but eventually things kind of broke down, and that's what I'll be talking about here. But uh, the reason that Europe is more concerned with Italy now where it wasn't before is because that Italy has kind of become a sentient talking piece of dynamite that likes to play with fire. That's sort of Italy's place within the European political discussion right now. Because the problem is that Italy has a lot of debt, like an immense amount of debt, and most of it is being held by European banking institutions. And if that sounds familiar, it should, because that's basically what caused the Eurozone crisis vis-a-vis Greek debt. Greece had a lot of debt. A lot of it was owned by European banks. And when Greece looked like it was going to default, that contributed to a major decline in the solvency of European banks, a collapse in lending, and then the Eurozone crisis, which threatened to turn into a major financial crisis that could have imploded the whole financial sector in Europe. So the problem with Italy is that it has that same problem, where a lot of its debt is being held by banks, and Italy's fiscal situation is not entirely stable, which calls into question the value of that debt. But the bigger problem here is that uh, the populists want to increase spending because they think that austerity has been forced on Italy uh, by you know banks and banking interest, and they think that the only way for the economy to really recover is to increase government spending. And that kind of ties into the Euros, Euro, the Eurozone crisis debate that was had about whether it was better to uh, use austerity to stabilize a debt crisis and then to facilitate economic growth. Or if it was better to forgive debt and then allow some government spending to try to serve as a kind of priming of the pump to get the economy working again. Um, as was the debate was largely academic because it was never really an economic crisis so much as a political crisis. Uh, Germany did not want to bail out Greece, but they kind of felt they had to in order to save German banks. And so they kind of held their nose and bailed out Greece, but after that wanted really nothing to do with them. Uh, It would have been political suicide for any German government to do otherwise. So there was even some Germans, I think the finance minister, Wolfgang Schaub, even said that he would have preferred if Greece defaulted on the debt because that would have made the problem go away. Uh, But regardless, there was never any real significant chance that Germany would allow restructuring of Greece's debt. So that's the real reason uh, that Greece had to stick with austerity for so long. I think even the German government would agree that probably austerity only damaged the Greek economy and they would have been better off without it. But the problem was, again, it would have been political suicide to restructure the debt and forgive a significant portion of it. And so Greece had to bite that bullet. There was also the issue of uh, precedent. You know, We talked a little bit about that before. If uh, Germany shows that it's willing to bail out Greece to save German banks, what kind of signal does that send to countries like Italy and Spain that also have a lot of debt that they're considering defaulting on? Um, not a good one. So the fear was that Italy might just try to default on its death, debt and the belief that they would get some kind of bailout. But the problem there, and again, this goes back to what I'm trying to explain, Italy has so much more debt than Greece ever did, that if Italy were to default on its debt, there's no way there could be a bailout. It's actually almost impossible, because there's just so much money. Italy's economy and debt is just so much larger that a bailout simply is not feasible, even. And so if there were such a debt default, then it would probably take a good good chunk of the banking sector With it. And that could cause a major financial crisis in Europe and in turn tank the European economy. So that's why Italy is of concern now and why it was of concern when the populist parties uh, that formed a government started talking about increasing spending. There was a fear that it might become unsustainable and might then spark uh, a loss of confidence in markets that would then have the knock on effect of causing a potential debt crisis. And like I said, a debt crisis with Italian debt is potentially catastrophic. So, the, needless to say, the European Union went out of its way to pressure the Italian government to hew to, towards, or to adhere to, rather, uh, fiscal restrictions that had been agreed to in the original Eurozone treaty. Um, I forget what it was technically, but basically, when the euro was created, uh, everybody agreed to keep their fiscal deficits within a certain band. Uh, you had to keep it under a certain cap, rather. And uh, for a long time, a lot of countries just ignored that because nobody really gave a shit. Uh, but with Italy, the European Union really started to kind of try to impose those rules and threaten with the corresponding sanctions that might that could be used in cases where that fiscal rule was being breached. So that led to some standoffs between the Italian government and the EU over the past year and change. And in general, the Italians said that they would do it and then kind of waffled and kind of sort of did it. I think right now what they did is they have a rule in place wherein if they don't agree on a budget, then some sales tax hikes are automatically implemented. And that's actually one of the reasons for the crisis that's happening now. So that's the background, the relevant background, to get into what's been happening lately. Basically, over the past couple months, if not even before that, since I haven't been following it too closely, but over the past couple months at least, there's been a falling out in relations between the Five Star Party and the League. Now, for those of you who maybe don't follow European politics too much, You've probably heard of a guy named Salvini, and he's basically the guy who heads the league. And I I don't quite remember if he's prime minister or just what exactly posi- what position exactly it was he had in Italy. Um, again, I would ask Chad to kind of keep me honest on that. Please correct me on that. But uh, at the very least, he was the leader of the league and uh, he was pushing for a new election. And the reason for that was, one, the falling out in relations between Five Star and the league. But two, the league was actually polling much better than the five-star. And there was a belief, particularly by Salvini, that if he could force new elections, then the league would pick up votes and maybe he could form a new center-right, if not far-right, conservative government without five-star. Now, part of the reason for the fallout in relations between five-star and league had to do with the spending project. I think it was a, a proposed tunnel, a rail tunnel that would be dug from turin i want to say or maybe it was milan to france i think it was something to that effect it was going to be dug through the alps and uh it had a huge price tag now the league's perspective was that it was a worthwhile infrastructure project that would help stimulate the economy just by dint of having more money being spent basically and more government spending and that it would have a long-term benefit to the economies of northern italy now, the five-star movement, in contrast, disagreed with that. They didn't think it was worth the money at all. They would have rather the money be spent on things like social programs and whatnot. And that kind of illustrates the difference between the right-wing and left-wing perspectives of the two parties. That's exactly the kind of thing that I kind of suspected would end up being a wedge. So on this particular infrastructure project, it seems to have been the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Um, for you For you non-native English speakers, that's a fancy phrase we have that basically means uh, the thing that broke tensions. You know tensions have been long running, and then the last issue that finally destroyed relations altogether was the infrastructure project. So that's what straw that broke the camel's back means. Camels can carry a lot of weight, but presumably there comes a point where if you add even a little bit of extra weight, you break its back.
0: Well, the phrase is basically the grain of rice that tipped the scale, but it has a negative connotation. There you go.
1: That's good. So the breakdown in relations precipitated that call for new elections. And as was in Italian politics, only the president can actually call for an early election. But President Mattarelli, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, demanded that a new budget be passed before the autumn. And in general, the idea was he only wants to allow it to happen if there's a budget first and not later. Now, let me check my notes here so I can make sure I get all this straight. There's never been an autumn election in Italy before. So the very idea that there would be uh, an autumn election was kind of weird. Well, I should say never been an autumn election after World War II. Let's make that clear. So it was a little bit unusual in that sense. But beyond that, let me see President Mattarelli didn't want to do it without the budget first, so that kind of constrained time a little bit. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here. Basically, the outcome of that call for a new election is that the, I want to say, Prime Minister Conte uh, stepped down. He resigned. He had been kind of a neutral candidate that was selected as a compromise candidate between Five Star and uh, the League. And he said that he, wouldn't, he didn't want to call a new election because he didn't like the way that Salvini and the League uh, were using their power to kind of blatantly push their own interests. Basically, he was skeptical. He kind of saw it more as power mongering than governing. So he resigned, and that precipitated uh, a big move to build a new coalition. And uh, the idea there was that the coalition needed a certain number of seats. Five Star pulled out of the coalition formally. And built a new coalition with an establishment political party called Democratic something or other. Let me check here. Italians know what I. Italians would recognize it right away, but I don't quite remember it off the top of my head. Uh,
0: Someone's saying Salvini was the deputy prime minister?
1: Deputy prime minister. Okay. Thank you. Whoever you are, thank you. Um, so this establishment, this establishment party was a center-left political party, and they'd actually been in government before under a technocrat. I think his name was Macri or something, something to that effect. And I think he's still in a leadership position in the party. But uh, basically, they pulled a fast one on Salvini by forming this coalition. Salvini had expected Five Star to not be able to build a coalition and that he would get his election and that he would get the opportunity to form a new government without Five Star. But instead, Five Star kind of surprised him formed this new coalition with the center-left party and is now going to form the new government without Salvini and the League. So this whole thing turned into a bit of a disaster for the League, which is now out of government. So that was a surprise outcome. It was looking for a while there that there would be a real right-wing government in Italy forming. But now it's a left-center-left government instead. So that's the drama that's been happening in Italy. And again, the reason that's significant is that uh, the populist parties had really been pushing for more spending and creating tension with the European Union on the one hand and then also markets on the other. So the new government, though, probably isn't going to have a lot of leverage to do much either. Uh, Their new government says that they're going to focus on, and I've got a list of priorities here. One is legislative reform. Uh, The Five Star Movement wants to reduce the number of legislators in both houses of Italy's legislature. Uh, That's meant to simplify politics a bit. That's been a reform that a number of people in Italy have been pushing for for a while. Uh, It's also one of the things that broke up the uh, coalition with the League. The League didn't really give a shit about that reform. But for Five Star, it was a major priority. It was a big thing that they campaigned on. So the fact that they weren't getting any traction on that, that was also a major contributing factor to the alliance breaking up. Let's see. So the new coalition that's been formed, they're going to focus on that legislative reform. They're going to focus on a, quote unquote, Green New Deal. Uh, I haven't read much about that. I don't think they've released too many details. But in general, I suspect it's going to be government spending to try to subsidize uh, green tech or at least shovel funds towards green tech research and academia of some kind. Um, There's a lot of different ways you can do a, quote unquote, Green New Deal. But I'm assuming that it's going to involve government involvement to some degree. Uh, They also say that they're going to spend more on education, welfare, and research. There's going to be tax cuts, and they're also going to set up a public bank dedicated to economic development in the south of Italy. For those of you not familiar with Italy's economy and political economy, the south of Italy is relatively poor. Um, Northern Italy is pretty rich and probably pretty indistinguishable from other western and central European countries in that regard terms of economic development. But southern Italy is relatively rural and undeveloped, and there's a lot more poverty there. So that creates a pretty stark divide uh, in Italy's culture, economy, and politics uh, that manifest in a number of ways. So in order to try to even out differences in economic development between north and south, they're going to try to set up this public bank. So all told, I'm not entirely sure how the hell they're going to pay for all that, because again, Italy's budget is a bit constrained to begin with, given the lack of economic growth and the lack of budget revenue. But they say that these are things they're going to do. It might be that uh, they end up doing them to a relatively small degree, that they do pass reforms to these effect, but that they're all pretty minor, that they, don't, they spend more on education, but they don't spend a whole lot more on education. Basically stuff like that so that they can stay within budget constraints. constraints rather. On the other hand, maybe they just go full tilt and spend well beyond fiscal constraints and then create a crisis in Europe. That's also possible. But in general, it seemed like uh, if that was going to happen, it would be more likely with the populist coalition in power as opposed to this coalition. So I think in general, it's less likely. Markets have responded positively. The new coalition uh, After the new coalition was formed, uh, Italian interest rates, I think, fell, if I'm remembering correctly. And so that suggests that markets are more confident in this government than in the previous one. So that's good news for the economic health of Europe. It's good news for Italy, certainly. Um, If you're a big believer in the five-star movement and this uh, Democratic Party, then maybe not, probably you're going to end up being disappointed because I don't think they have enough uh, room to maneuver to really do anything too big in terms of reform or government spending. But I could be wrong. Maybe they try for something. But in general, I'm a little skeptical. But uh, this was all this all unfolded over the past couple of weeks and kind of made a lot of people in markets hold their breath a little bit. <laughs> Wasn't really entirely sure how that would play out. So we got a surprise ending and a new direction for Italy. Um, in terms of headlines, you'll probably notice less headlines involving immigrants in Italy. Um, again, the League ha- focused heavily on immigration and Salvini in particular made a point of being the public face of Italy's anti-immigration sentiment. And so now that he's out of power, probably Italy's government is going to take a softer line on immigrants, although I doubt that they're going to really open up either. Uh, Again, immigration is very controversial, and I think a lot of uh, major establishment parties at this point are starting to realize that uh, it's easier to give compromises in terms of restricting immigration than it is to compromise on the core economic structure of Europe. You know, things like neoliberalism, uh, free trade, uh, stuff like that. Some of the core infrastructure that holds together the European Union, some of that's being criticized by the same people that uh, criticize immigration. And given the choice between the two, I think most establishment parties now are really coming down on the side of preserving the economic institutions that hold up Europe at the cost of restricting immigration. That's basically why center left parties kind of swept elections in Scandinavia recently. Over the past, I think, couple months or so, elections were held in Sweden, Denmark, I want to say Iceland too. And basically, the center left establishment parties did really well. And part of the one of the ways that they did that is by shifting their campaign, uh, shifting their political platform rather to emphasize uh, restricting immigration, where before they hadn't been doing that. So by giving that concession, they were able to pick up significant votes and marginalize a lot of that populist sentiment. And uh, you know, on the one hand, less immigration, but on the other hand, they get to kind of stabilize what had been some pretty contentious politics in the region. So that's an improvement there in terms of political stability in Scandinavia. And now we're kind of seeing something, we're probably going to see similar similar such trade-offs made in the rest of uh, in the rest of europe you know germany and the cdu that is to say the conservative party for the most part in power in germany they're kind of they're in a coalition with the uh center left main center left political party but the cdu had more votes they had more leverage that's why angela merkel is still uh, prime minister so germany is kind of shifting towards that too merkel doesn't make uh, big grandiose statements about solving you know, the big immigration problem and that Europe can handle it and that kind of thing. They don't really do that anymore. And I suspect the Italian government, even with this new coalition that includes the Democratic Party, the establishment center left party, they're probably also going to start moving against immigration or at least preserve, for the most part, the move against immigration that was started by the League and the Five Star Coalition. Again, they'll be softer on the issue than Salvini was, but for the most part, they're probably not going to just open up the borders or even significantly increase the intake of refugees. That's my expectation. Anyway, make of that what you will. Uh, That's not based on I'm not an expert on Europe. That's just what I've read and me drawing some conclusions on it. So make of it what you will. Don't take it to the bank.
0: I've only ever been to the northern part of Italy, the Tuscany area. So Siena, Florence, spots like that, Mm -hmm. which are very, very similar to the southeastern region of France. Mm -hmm. So around Nice and whatnot. It's really nice kind of wine country and stuff in Tuscany, rolling hills. It is a pretty wealthy area from what I remember. Mm -hmm. A lot of emphasis on having the... Most fresh and expensive fashion.
1: Gotta have it. Yeah, the fashion industry is really big in northern Italy. Mm. You know, they've got some really strong premium brands up there. Yeah, fashion, the automotive industry, and I think some light manufacturing are pretty big up there. And then the rest of Italy, not so much. <laughs> A little bit weak down there. They've got Rome and Naples. Let's see. What else do we have here? That's uh, that's Italy in a nutshell. There. Um, How do you feel about Greenland, Nero?
0: Well, I do know that there is the recent meme of Trump saying that he wanted to purchase Greenland, which I don't know if he knew or knows that it's a part of Denmark. It is. That's correct. I think under their control. So would have to be talking to Denmark about purchasing it,
1: but... Well, that's basically what he was actually doing, if you can believe that. Okay. He actually had a meeting scheduled with the Danish government. I think it was before the G7 meeting, or something to that effect. But uh he was going to go over there and meet with them. And uh, he released a tweet, well, posted a tweet, if you like, basically saying that he was interested in buying Denmark. And the Danish government kind of came out and said, well, that's ridiculous. You can't just Buying Greenland.
0: Huh? Buying Greenland, not Denmark.
1: Oh <laughs> sorry. Buying Greenland. You can't just buy Greenland. That's uh, that's ridiculous. And so then Trump himself got really upset by the wording that was used, you know, them calling it preposterous and whatnot. And so he actually cancelled his trip. He refused to go to Denmark to meet with the government because they thought he thought that he'd been slighted by the Danish government. <laughs> So apparently that was a semi-serious proposal on Twitter. I don't think you can blame...
0: (laughs) That's where you make your semi-serious proposals.
1: (laughs) I don't think you can blame the Danish government for being incredulous. Uh, Normally when you want to do something big like that, you use your diplomats. You You contact your embassy in the other country and then you have them send out feelers. And then you kind of negotiate it in the background for a while. And then once some kind of understanding is met, Then you start the formal negotiations at the national level, at the government-to-government level, rather. You can't really just come out and blurt it out, saying, I want to buy something from you, can I? Can I have Greenland? Well, no, you can't. At least not without more of a negotiation in place. As is, the Danish government says not only are they not interested, but that Uh, The government in Greenland is not interested because it's an autonomous government. They have a fair amount of autonomy. And uh, I don't think the Danish government would force Greenland uh, to basically change its sovereignty against their will. I don't think they would uh, do it unless they had their permission. And the Greenland government has suggested that it is not, in fact, interested in being a part of the United States at this time. Um, can't imagine why, but as is, they're pretty comfortable being a part, being a part of Denmark. Uh, if they were to switch, if they were to become a U.S. territory, that would be a pretty significant change in the law. Uh, Danish government uses Napoleonic code, and the U.S. obviously is a common law country.
0: What are those two things?
1: Common law is the old British legal system. And basically, it's a legal system that's built on precedent. You know, however, a given case ruled before serves as the basis for future decisions. This is gross simplification. I'm not a lawyer. I vaguely know what I'm talking about. So, you know, this is a good time for the usual disclaimer. I'm not an expert in everything I talk about. I make mistakes. If I say something stupid, biased, or wrong, please, please do correct me. I encourage chat's participation. I don't read chat while I do this, but I will read it later. So I will eventually see your comments. Uh, so again, participation encouraged. I learn a lot from chat, uh, generally, <laughs> after the fact when I read through it. And so I appreciate the opportunity to see different perspectives and criticisms and whatnot. And uh, yeah, that's, that's the usual disclaimer in a nutshell. So when I discuss this legal stuff here, um, just keep that in mind. And please do give me you know corrections and criticism if I hit this wrong. But basically, from what I remember, common law is the old British system, and it is based principally on precedent. Napoleonic code, on the other hand, is a system of laws that was, as you can imagine, stemmed from Napoleonic France, and they kind of spread it around when they took over Europe. And a lot of the new laws that were implemented as part of Napoleon's conquest of Europe and the places that he conquered were relatively liberal. Liberalism was kind of a new thing at that time. So these liberal reforms were not wanted by the governments that were conquered, but they were pretty popular with the people. So even after Napoleon was defeated, a lot of these liberal reforms were maintained, and they formed what came to be called Napoleonic Code. And one of the big differences between common law systems and Napoleonic Code is that in Napoleonic Code, and again, please correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but with Napoleonic Code, uh, precedent isn't nearly as important. Rather... Uh, You have a judge, basically, who will listen to the arguments from lawyers from both sides in a given case and will make a judgment himself. Uh, As opposed to in an adversarial system like the common law system. uh, Well, let me backtrack a little bit. Not only does in an amolionic code system, not only does the judge make the decision, the final decision, he also is responsible for the investigation. I should point that out. So the lawyers for the two different competing sides, they don't actually do their own investigation and then present evidence. Rather, the judge himself is the head of an investigation in which the lawyers have input. So that's in stark contrast to the elite common law system where the lawyers from the two sides do their own investigations and then present evidence before the judge, and then the judge makes a decision based on the evidence they present him. So those are your two big differences, investigations, precedent. And that's mm-hmm. all I remember off the top of my head. So that's not a detailed explanation, but roughly that's the history and some of the differences that I'm remembering. And I hope Chad is adding something substantive here because I'm sure there's more to it than that. Wait, how did I get onto that common?
0: Uh, we talked about Denmark has oh, a right, right,
1: right. system. Yeah, so the, they would have to figure out how to work that. Uh, the U.S. and the uh, who's it has different systems like that. I think Louisiana, the state of Louisiana, kind of has still retained some of its old uh, French legal system. For example, they have parishes instead of counties. I think that's the only state mm. that has that. But uh, I don't think that Louisiana really inherited the Napoleonic Code. I think it's just I think it's actually an older legal system. Because Louisiana didn't stay part of France for very long under Napoleon. He ended up, of course, famously selling it uh, to the United States because he needed money to go, you know, take over Europe and whatnot.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and that's expensive.
1: Very. So they would have to figure that out if they bought Greenland. And there's also the issue of Greenland's autonomy. You know, how do you maintain that? I'm sure they would want to retain autonomy. Maybe you could create a new classification in the American legal system that would allow them to have more autonomy. Maybe Puerto Rico would be interested in that at this point. Uh, Another problem is that Denmark sends, I think, something like 600 million euros in subsidies to the Greenland government every year. And I don't know if the U.S. would be willing to do that because I don't think the U.S. sends money to Puerto Rico or its various territories. So there would pro- and there, pro- there would probably be resistance to doing so, at the very least. So for those reasons, Greenland would probably prefer to stay with Denmark. I'm not entirely I'm not entirely sure why Denmark would really want to hold on to it because I don't know that Greenland really gives uh, the Danish government a lot of advantages. They don't make a lot of money off of it, for example. It could be more valuable in future since the ice is melting, so you could have more access to the natural resources there. Well, that's a very long term. And it's probably very hard to defend. I think they mostly rely on the United States and NATO for the defense of Greenland rather than the Danish military. But on the other hand, it does give them influence in terms of things like uh, geopolitics. For example, the reason that the United States is interested in buying Greenland in the first place it has more to do with China than it does with anything else. The Chinese government is interested in uh, the fact that Basically, the ice in the North Pole is melting, so that potentially opens up lucrative new trade routes uh, between China and Europe. It would actually be way shorter, a way shorter trip for a ship going from China to Europe to go through the North Pole to Europe, uh, rather than through the Panama Canal or some other route. So for that reason, China's interested in trying to secure the Arctic for its shipping and the potential if it does happen that they can do that in the future, can ship things uh, through an Arctic route, you know, the famous Northwest Passage. Uh, but they don't really have a lot of leverage to work with because they don't actually have any territory there. Now, Canada and the U.S., of course, have a lot of territory there, but they're not interested in sharing. Last I checked, neither is Russia. Uh, but the other big country in the Arctic region and the North Pole region is Greenland and Denmark. And so Greenland, of course, is interested in attracting investment any way can, it can to boost its economy. And the Chinese government has been, been very forward in pushing some of its state-owned enterprises and other companies to try to invest more in Greenland so that the Chinese government can have some leverage over Greenland and Denmark that it can maybe use in certain North Pole slash Arctic forums to push its uh, political preferences in the region. So a kind of geopolitical play there to which Donald Trump responded by saying, I want to buy Greenland, which is a pretty bold move. Perhaps there would have been a more subtle way of doing that. Other presidents up till now have tackled the issue mostly by tightening up relations in NATO, making it clear that the United States is going to protect Denmark and that they're allies with Denmark and that Greenland is an important part of the defense of the United States. The United States has a number of air bases there. Or at least one important base there uh, that is used for early warning. There's an early warning radar station there, and uh, yeah, it's a considered a strategic part of the North American defense region, so to speak. So that being the case, there is kind of a that is the traditional approach, anyway, to trying to preserve American access to Greenland and ensuring that the Danish government isn't too overly influenced by rival powers, so to speak. But uh, buying Greenland kind of also resolves that. So that is technically a viable strategy that solves the problem. You don't have to worry about the Chinese setting up shop in a place if you own it, at least as far as the United States goes. Um, I don't think they're going to sell, so probably Greenland will not become American territory. But it could be something that's explored in future. It's actually not the first time the United States has tried to buy Greenland. There was actually an attempt by the uh, Truman administration way back in the late, I want to say late 1940s, when they approached the Danish government and asked if they could buy Greenland, because, uh, again, Greenland was, was seen as an important stepping stone to Europe, and it was seen as a logical place to have early warning stations. You know, if you're worried about Soviet bombers nuking the shit out of you, it makes sense to put some early warning radars in a place like Greenland so you can detect them before they get to the United States. That was not an entirely reasonable fear at the time. The Soviets didn't actually have a bomber that could reach the United States at then, but we didn't know that. The Soviets went out of their way to make us think that they did, and that was enough. Hence the desire to purchase Greenland. It was uh, meant to be a strategic asset at that time. Now it's meant uh, more as an economic asset, more a way of denying the Chinese government access to a Sensitive, potentially future sensitive economic and strategic region. So that's the background to the whole Greenland thing.
0: How did they ask to purchase Greenland before Twitter existed?
1: (laughs) Politely. Oh. (laughs) They did it politely through normal channels, I suspect. Okay. So that's Greenland. That's interesting, but nothing really happened with it and probably nothing will most likely, but there's some interesting history there. So I thought it was worth touching on. Uh, let's see, we did the Brexit thing. A brief note here. Um, there was a change to immigration rules in the United States, and this was an administrative change. Uh, basically it's a public charge administrative change. It has to do with, uh, restricting the ability of legal immigrants to get a visa extension, a green card, or citizenship if they have at some point or are on public assistance. And I think the specific rule is if they've been on public assistance for a year or more, uh, then under this new rule, they could be blocked from getting a visa extension, green card, or citizenship. Uh, The new rule also stipulates that they can be blocked if a judge deems it likely that they will be on Oh, well, sorry not a judge if they are judged to be likely uh, if they're judged likely to be on public assistance in future or if don't meet certain income standards so the idea there is that uh, the government wants to prevent uh, legal immigrants whom they believe may not be self-sufficient uh, from gaining permanent residency of some kind you can imagine how well that was received. There was a lot of contention and controversy about this change. Um, It's not really a substantive change per se. uh, Because it's basically an executive order, uh, or uh, maybe it was an order by an administrative agency, I don't quite recall. But regardless, it's uh, done within the executive branch. Congress is not required to make a change like this. This illustrates the power of the presidency in modern American politics. There's a A lot of things a president now can do, and we talked a bit about this last week with the uh, imperial presidency, you know, Leviathan, as they used to call it. Wait, no, that was actually the government in general, wasn't it? Well, the presidency has become inordinately powerful in modern American politics, and one of the ways that power is utilized is through executive orders and administrative agencies. And what they'll do is they'll just change how rules are interpreted or how they're implemented. And there's a lot of leeway to do that because Congress generally half-asses legislation, or at least frequently half-asses legislation, in ways that make it ambiguous. And when you pass ambiguous legislation, that basically gives a lot of discretionary power to the executive executive branch to interpret what it's supposed to mean, and then in turn determining what rules are put in place to actually enforce it. So that's a little bit of an abrogation abdication, rather. That's a little bit of an abdication of power on the part of Congress when they pass ambiguous legislation. And in this case, uh, the government, that is to say, the Trump administration, is using some of that ambiguity to try to prevent people that they believe are not self-sufficient to gain permanent residency. So... Not a significant change per se. Whenever you have a Republican administration in, you can expect them to interpret and change rules according to their preferences. And the same for Democrats. That's pretty much inevitable whenever you have a president from one part or the other gaining power. You can expect as much. Um, If you don't like that, then write your congressman and request that they actually pass specifically worded legislation instead of half-assing it. That's pretty much the way you deal with that. But it's an interesting case study in how administrative agencies and executive orders can be used to, uh, how should I say, project the power of the executive uh, executive branch or exercise power on the part of the executive branch.
0: Well, I guess I can uh, give a little bit of Viking histories here since some people didn't know that Denmark owns Greenland. So in the Viking era, there was a population boom in Scandinavia. And for those who don't know, the Viking countries were Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. On the map, it looks like Finland would be in that set, but it's not. They're different people. They weren't really involved in the same Viking about like <laughs> going places and raiding stuff and doing business. Yeah. It was Denmark. And Denmark was actually the most technologically advanced of the... Viking peoples, largely because they were connected with mainland Europe, which meant they had to defend against a lot of other stuff. For Norway and Sweden, they really only had to deal with fighting each other. They didn't really get invaded much. I mean, who's going to go on a boat and sail north? It's like cold as heck and the waters are really rough. So they kind of had their own natural barrier and defense just by virtue of being protected by these really turbulent seas so given that uh, Denmark as they're kind of being really successful they decide to go on some conquests and whatnot and the obvious places that they could take that weren't really occupied and well defended were the islands and kind of peninsulas and stuff to the north and west so Iceland is the other one and I think it was Norway who had the, the tightest grip on iceland and still has the biggest influence correct me if i'm wrong on that but i think it was denmark for greenland and then norway had iceland and a lot of those places ended up having uh, a lot of concentrated viking culture that was saved there because there wasn't as much immigration from other places to greenland and iceland they're more remote than to norway sweden and denmark so that's where they keep a lot of the Viking sagas that's in Iceland. Greenland, despite the way that the two landmasses are named, Greenland is very icy. Iceland is kind of green. They're both still pretty hostile environments. They're very, very cold. You can't really farm crops very well. So most times people in those areas are going to be living off of livestock, stuff like milk, um, other animals that you could eat, or fish and cheese and things like that. Mm -hmm. so yeah there's a little brief Viking history for why Denmark has Greenland
1: interesting now as I recall when it was originally colonized way back when because I think they originally got there in the medieval period if I'm not mistaken the climate at that time was warmer and so they actually were able to set up some substantive agriculture at first But then, of course, the climate ended up changing, becoming much colder, and that actually wiped out a number of settlements. And as a result, uh, the presence on the Greenlanders, the presence of the original Vikings and later Scandinavian peoples is a little bit lighter than it was at first.
0: Yeah, that would make sense. I know that there have been some natural fluctuations in the average global temperature and sometimes you're in a location where that doesn't really matter like the place is good for farming Mm. the temperature can go up and down five degrees and it's still fine but places that are on the edge like if you go far enough north then if it's a warm period then you can do farming but if it cools down even a little bit then you have to just up and leave or change the method that you're creating food and stuff like
1: that I think it was also during that warm period that they ended up going to Newfoundland. Have you heard of that?
0: Yes, I think it was Eric the Red who went across and they tried to establish a settlement there. The problem is you can only fit so many people on a Viking expedition. And to be able to stay and establish a permanent place, you're generally going to want to be able to bring supplies to and from. So be able to go back across the ocean, bring more people over to populate it, but it was way too far. Like they were able to make it across, which is a really big feat of just seafaring. But to be able to make that something that was a permanent settlement is way more difficult. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fitting with the, it's easier to attack and take a tory than it is to govern it and build it up. hmm
1: yeah, I thought that was pretty wild. They were technically the first Europeans in North America.
0: Yeah, by a huge margin.
1: <laughs>
0: I think it was like 500 years almost. Because yeah. it was around the year 1000, which is when it was the Viking era. Mm-hmm. That's when they were going about. Yeah, that sounds Going great. on quests. It, I think a lot of it was sort of accidental. I mean, they they obviously didn't know what was over there, but... Sometimes you just pray to Odin and you're kind of seeing, all right, if the gods favor me, then I'm going to find something good and it's going to work out. So you probably hear the stories of the people who were successful and they left some evidence of that success rather than all of the uh, silly Viking adventurers who just sailed off in a direction and died (laughs) because they didn't end up anywhere useful and leave any trace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That likely happened as
1: well. Probably. Unfortunately. Such is life. Yeah. We almost didn't know about Newfoundland. I think that was a relatively new discovery, wasn't it?
0: Mm. Relative
1: to what? Well, I mean they didn't find it wasn't discovered that Vikings had actually reached Newfoundland until relatively recently.
0: Oh. <clears throat> yeah, I think it was just archaeological investigation that uncovered that. Yeah. Because they found a bunch of different like Viking armor and tools and evidence of them trying to set up
1: shop there, basically. Yeah, yeah, they got around. You know, they may have played an important role in the formation of the Russian ethnic group. Obviously, Slavic peoples were the principal component, but there was a number of Viking Vikings who traveled down the river systems, like the Volga River system, and uh, did a lot of trading and became major traders, wealthy traders, and uh, political leaders in some cases went all the way down to the Black Sea, if I remember correctly.
0: Mm-hmm. We're involved in, what's that? Uh, Byzantine Empire? Yeah, yeah mercenaries for the yeah. Byzantines.
1: <laughs> yeah, I remember if,
0: you telling us about If they've got the coin and they need a strong arm, then, well, I've got a job.
1: <laughs> well, that's uh, quality arms they had. Yep. Let's see. Well, a lot of it, too, is
0: people become... Uh, career fighters and they become especially good at what they do so if they're just rolling around with that skill set they're going to be looking for jobs that call upon that skill set and if you have a place that's been peaceful for a long time you might have people who are professional soldiers but if you don't actively put them into combat then they're going to be a lot less confident when things actually do get messy and they have to fight Mm -hmm. It's a lot harder to learn how to fight on the fly than calling upon your years of experience.
1: Yeah, That's the trouble with conscripts.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You can get a lot of them quickly, but uh, not generally as good going toe-to-toe against experienced, trained soldiers. Yep. Germany did pretty good with that for a while. (laughs) didn't last though too many conscripts on the other side let's see how do you feel about argentina nero Mm,
0: well i feel like it's one of the uh, i think we talked about briefly before it's one of the bigger economic actors in South America, but right now they're going through a bit of a mess.
1: Yeah, I hope you haven't been investing much there, because it's not going well. Uh-oh. Well, for a long time, for those maybe not familiar with Argentina's economy, it's uh, mostly a export economy that focuses on agricultural goods, although they've been producing more industry too. But it's kind of known for its uh, incredibly productive agricultural land, the Pampas, And so they export a lot of beef and food and, you know, what have you. So under the uh, previous Kirchner government, and we talked a little bit about this last time, under the Kirchner government that was in power uh, before, there were export restrictions put in place. There was taxes were raised. uh, Fiscal spending was way too high, uh, prohibitively so. And uh, there was just, well, they actually got locked out of debt markets Because nobody trusted them to borrow and actually pay anything they borrowed back. So the economy, because of that lack of access to uh, international liquidity, and because of that fiscal hole that they were spending themselves into, they eventually just, uh, I don't want to say the economy collapsed, that's too much, but the economy entered a period of decline that had the, principally because of inflation, that's generally the telltale sign in Argentina but also following production and just too much regulation, strangled businesses, the whole, the whole shebang, it was kind of a mess. So then the conservative was elected replacing Kirchner, a guy named Macri, I think his name is. And he tried to implement reforms to restore market confidence, reduce inflation and restore uh, fiscal solvency, so to speak to the Argentine government. And, uh, He passed a number of reforms, but ultimately he wasn't really able to significantly cut spending because there was too much opposition in Argentina's legislature. And uh, such was his inability to pass substantive reforms that markets did not have confidence in him. Uh, They were hopeful at first, but after a while, they lost it. And so inflation has remained largely unaddressed in Argentina And so the economic conditions in Argentina have been deteriorating further, even though there's a conservative in the executive office, uh, in the executive branch, rather, uh, who nominally wants to reform the economy. He just doesn't really have the votes to do enough to assuage markets and uh, return the economy and stabilize the economy. So the reason that's significant is that uh, new elections are coming up and it's looking like the leftists might come back into power Um, Not Kirchner herself, per se, uh, but rather someone in her party uh, that has her running as vice president. And his name, I think, I don't know if I has his name here. No, I don't have his name, but he's somebody that she's had a rocky relationship with in the past. So it's not necessarily the case that if Kirchner's party gets back into power that she and her style of politics will return as well, given that she has kind of a rivalry with this guy. But markets think that that's optimistic, <laughs> and they're a bit pessimistic right now in Argentina. And so they feel that if she, if her party gets back in power, it's going to be a return to form and a return to uh, out of control spending, you know, debt problems, etc. So they believe the Argentine economy is just going to decline even further. Then, so what happened in the past couple of weeks is that there was a primary, and uh, if you don't know what a primary is, that's basically a an election before an election. You know, here in the U.S., we use them, individual parties use them to elect uh, presidential nominees. And in the case of Argentina here, uh, it's not individual parties that have them. They actually have uh, multi-party primaries. So even, you know, opposing parties will participate in the same primary election. And it gives a kind of signal to see how the vote public is feeling about them. And in this case, the primary resulted in a huge loss uh, for Macri, uh, the incumbent candidate. And the result of that was a massive tumble in markets. Market confidence collapsed even further, basically, and uh, caused the Argentine currency to devalue and increase inflation correspondingly, which was already very high. So lots of bad things. Bad news for Argentina's economy, essentially. Uh The presidential candidates, well, Macri himself, I should say, has responded by trying to introduce new measures that are publicly popular, but that markets are not going to like. And basically it's seen as a desperation move on his part to try to restore public confidence so that he can get enough votes to win re-election and hopefully, uh, for him anyway, pass more market-oriented reforms that will hopefully deal with the inflation and stabilize the economy. But... It's unclear if these will be enough to win him re-election, given that he's kind of associated with utter failure in stabilizing the economy. Some of the stuff he's doing include proposing income tax cuts, increases in welfare spending, and a freeze in petrol prices. Uh, for you Americans, that's freezing gas prices. So altogether, those things would be more popular than just gutting government spending to try to assuage debt markets. Uh But on the other hand, those things are going to make the fiscal situation worse, and it's already pretty bad. So they really should be doing the opposite. But as is, markets kind of gave him the benefit of the doubt, because they know that if he doesn't do something, then he has virtually no chance in the election, although most people are predicting that he's going to lose regardless anyway. So most likely, we'll see a return to, if not Kirchner-style governance, then at least – What would be called left? What you could call leftist Argentine politics, uh, Peronist politics, as they call them there. Although that's not entirely leftist. Uh, Peronism is kind of kind of mixes leftist ideologies with populist right ideologies. It's sort of nationalism plus economic economic centralism. It's sort of a weird animal. It's very Argentine. Stems from uh, Juan Peron whom I'll be talking about in my podcast series <laughs> that I'm still working on. I've got a whole episode on Argentina quite a bit, so I'll be talking about Peronism and that if I can ever get it finished. So the outlook for Argentina's economy is not great, and if it deteriorates further, that could be a problem for the regional economies that kind of have ties to Argentina. And if there are export restrictions that could lead to fluctuations in food prices globally, since argentina is a major producer i don't think it'll collapse prices or any or significantly raise prices rather uh, but it could be a problem yeah it could tick them up a little bit so that's the drama in argentina
0: did you know that now you know
1: <laughs> for those interested in argentine politics that's kind of a brief snapshot just so you know what's going on down there. The actual election I think is in a couple weeks maybe. Maybe it's longer than that I don't quite recall. But we'll have a we'll have we'll know what direction the Argentine government takes once the elections are held and we should know pretty soon. So it'll be interesting to watch. There in general in South America there's been a shift away from leftist ideology ideologies rather like uh, Chavismo, Chavista if you like. You know, so there, there was for a while a strong trend towards uh, more government spending, more government programs, etc., more you know, education spending, things like that. In places like Brazil, under Lula, uh, Argentina had Kirchner. Well, the Kirchners, the original Kirchner was actually a man, and then he died, and the, his wife took over. So that's the current Kirchner. I forget their name. I think her name is Cristina Kirchner. I don't quite remember though. But uh, Ecuador had Correa, Venezuela had Chavez, uh, Nicaragua had what's his fa- Ortega, and of course Bolivia had and has Morales. Uh, but in general, pu- public sentiment has shifted against those ideologies in a lot of places. Correa and Ecuador is out of power now. is replaced by a guy who's more moderate. Venezuela imploded. They still have their leftist government, but it's not doing very well. Morales is still in power, but his margin of, uh, what, what would you call it? His uh, numerical advantage in the legislature is was always pretty narrow. He didn't have that, his majority, that's the word I want, his majority in the legislature was always relatively narrow. And so he'd never had a whole lot of room to maneuver to begin with, per se. And I think that's only narrowed with time. You know, If you're familiar with Bolivian politics, please correct me on that. But that is my impression. And then Argentina, of course, shifted towards Macri. Bolivia shifted to uh, Mr. Bolsonaro, an interesting figure in his own right. So you, there's a clear trend towards the political right. Uh, not necessarily always a rightist government, per se, but towards the right in general. So Argentina electing... Uh, again, not Kirchner herself per se, but this sort of Kirchner affiliate, that would be sort of a shift against that trend. So that could harbor a broader regional trend or it could just be Argentina being weird like it usually is. We'll see. So speaking of Latin America, since you brought it up, Nero, (laughs) uh, the news from Venezuela, the most recent news from Venezuela is that the Venezuelan government has actually been having secret talks with the U.S. government over the past few months. This came out over the past few weeks or so.
0: They're not very secret if everyone knows about them.
1: (laughs) Well, they're not secret anymore, yeah. Well, it's not clear what they were talking about because no details have been leaked thus far, but apparently there has been some government-to-government talks as far as what could result in a de-escalation of tensions and some return to normalcy there. And I don't really have anything to say on this per se, but for those of you who haven't been following the news much, that is the latest development in Venezuela. These secret talks have been going on, presumably are still going on, and there could be something significant that comes out of them in terms of a potential uh, reconciliation between the opposing factions in Venezuela. Or more likely, it just comes to nothing and then everything just keeps going as it's always been going. So status quo, always a safe bet in terms of politics. But we'll see. That's something to keep your eye on. I did think, uh, as a side note here, the president of Venezuela, uh, I think his name is Nicolas Maduro, uh, he had an interesting way of describing the meetings. He described the meetings as, quote, secret meetings in secret places with secret people that nobody knows, end quote which I thought was a little on the nose, but fair enough. I suppose that pretty much sums up secret talks. Uh, Let's see. Also South America, Colombia. You're familiar with the Colombian civil war, right, Nero? Vaguely?
0: Mm.
1: Vaguely, yes. Yeah, in general, it started way back in the 50s, kind of sort. It actually kind of had its origins in La Violencia, which is a very fancy name for political violence, I might add. That sounds very catchy in English. La violencia. Well, in
0: English it just means
1: the violence. Yeah, Yeah, it just means the violence. But in Spanish it sounds so elegant. Mm -hmm. But that period of political violence kind of originated the political tensions that exploded later into civil war in the early 50s. And the result was the formation of a uh, radical Marxist group called uh, FARC, uh, which I believe stands for something. I don't. I'm not even going to try. Armed Forces, something Colombia, basically. And there was also another group called the ELN, which was also far. It was never as big as FARC, but it was also another significant rebel group. And uh, they fought the government for decades, starting in the '50s, all the way up till just a few years ago, I think it was. And FARC finally signed a peace deal with the Colombian government. That almost failed because the Colombian government knew that it was unpopular. A lot of people really hate FARC in Colombia. So they put it to a referendum. And uh, as you might guess, they rejected it. (laughs) The public actually voted no on the peace deal. So that put the Colombian government in an awkward position because they'd been negotiating that peace deal for a long time, for a couple of years, I think. Something to that effect. It was uh, President Santos, I think, at the time. Please correct me if I'm wrong on that. But I think it was a guy named President Santos. And he kind of put himself into a corner by forcing that, rep by putting it to a referendum. So I think he ended up making some minor changes to the uh, peace deal that had been negotiated to try to appease public anger. But then after he did that, he didn't have another referendum. He actually just said, OK, well, the referendum was cons- consultative. I know how the public feels now. I'll make some changes. Now they should accept this. So let's just do this. So I think they just voted on that in the legislature and passed it. A lot of people still pretty upset about it, but in general, uh, they fi- they did finally implement it. And so the uh, de-radicalization measures were taken to try to transition former FARC fighters to civilian life. Uh, they tried to disarm FARC. You know, They did all of these kinds of things to de-escalate things. And make FARC a sort of normal institution. And they also had amnesty. You know, they gave a lot of former rebel leaders amnesty. And I think FARC was guaranteed a certain number of seats in the legislature, which was super controversial. Lots of people really hated that one. But uh, in general, things were going relatively well, but there were tensions. You know, there were some rebel leaders that the government arrested for other crimes or crimes that were too serious to ignore. And that kind of made FARC, certain FARC member, former FARC members, a little suspicious that maybe the government wasn't being entirely genuine. And then there was a couple of former FARC members that got assassinated. And that really got them suspicious. So what happened, uh, I think, a week or two ago is that one of the former leaders of FARC, a guy named uh, Ivan Marquez, again, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, uh, he announced that he was going to restore FARC uh, under the form of a new organization called FARC EP. And it has to do with this general disillusionment with the peace deal. You know, uh, again, people on both sides are unhappy. FARC doesn't like that. Some of their members are being assassinated among other problems. Uh, um, and you know, the government arresting certain former members. And then of course the broader public hates the FARC cause they, a lot of people in the pu- general public see them as a terrorist organization. Uh, nothing more than that even in a lot of for a lot of people and so there's a sense that they shouldn't be giving them a voice in government or being so lenient there's a sense that there should be more of an emphasis on justice and bringing uh, perpetrators of farc violence to justice so the deal isn't completely breaking down but the fact that this major leader is trying to kind of get back into the game so to speak is kind of a bad omen that that doesn't really bode well for peace in Colombia. But violence never really went away. You know there was, uh, theres always there was still right-wing paramilitaries operating in the country and a lot of former FARC members transitioned into the drug trade, which was a pretty easy transition to make, you know living out in the jungle and a lot of FARC revenue was raised uh, through the drug trade. so it makes sense. If you can't get paid to fight anymore, you might as well get paid making and selling the drugs that you were making producing all along anyway. Not all of them did that, but a fair number did. And of course, the ELN, the other rebel group I mentioned, they never had a peace deal with the government. So they've just kind of been going on their usual uh, menace and mayhem as per usual. So there's kind of a sense in Colombia that the peace deal isn't working and that it's maybe not going to collapse fully, but maybe critical components of it are going to fail. And maybe some people that were covered under it will return to the forest, will return to the jungle rather, and uh, go back to being guerrilla fighters. So I don't want to say the Colombian civil war is going to start up again, but there's some early warning signs here that suggest there might be a problem. Something to keep an eye on. (laughs) To put it mildly.
0: I really like some of the phrases that just, they're just fun. Like, some of their members are being assassinated and they didn't like that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I can see why they wouldn't like that. That sounds like it would be kind of annoying.
1: (laughs) Well, I I probably could uh, be more uh, choose my words better. You know, maybe it would be better to
0: No, I don't know. I think it's funnier. It's, it's true. What you say is not false. Yeah. And I think for people who aren't listening super closely, that sets the tone. Like if, if they miss a couple words here or there, because we have some listeners that are doing some other stuff, that's, that's totally fine. Okay. It's just, it's fun kind of exploring the, the thought process mm-hmm. of, Sir, some of, our, some of our members have been assassinated. Well, I don't like that one bit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair point. Fair point.
0: Carry on. You have a, a good manner of speaking, I think, but we can all kind of uh, tease each other a decent bit, though.
1: Oh, sure, no, no problem. I, mm-hmm. I try, I try to uh, be specific so I don't end up accidentally offending people when talking about this, that, or the other. But yeah, sometimes uh, something slips out, you know. So yeah, fair enough. Um, did you want to talk about space force? Hell yeah, dude. <laughs> I don't have- even if it's really stupid, it's
0: just it's fun because I mean we have a bunch of Starcraft people, so Space Force like that's going to get people hyped up even if it's just empty promises and shenanigans.
1: Well, it's not empty anymore, Neuro. Oh no, no. Because uh, past week or two, I don't have the specific date. I just have it in my notes here. But the past week or two, uh, the Trump administration unveiled its new quote unquote Space Command. And the new Space Command is going to be responsible for the defense of U.S. assets in space. Satellites and what have, whatever else they have up there that we don't know about, God knows. But satellites in general, probably the main thing. And uh, in general, the fear that's uh, kind of been festering over the past 10 years or so is the knowledge that other countries like Russia and China have been investing in anti-satellite weapons. Which is a smart thing to do. You know, the U.S. uh, leans pretty heavily on its advantage in terms of telecommunications. Uh, That is to say, its military relies on an advantage in communications and information uh, in battle spaces. So if you know that satellites are an important part of that network and you think you might have a problem with the U.S. in future, it kind of behooves you to focus on anti-SAT weapons. So because other countries have been developing that tech, the United States government now has created a space command that's going to be responsible for organizing a defense over them. Now, I think technically the U.S. is still obligated by treaty not to militarize space, if I'm not mistaken. So I'm a little interested to see just what direction the new space command takes. Are they actually going to go out of their way to develop new weapons and technologies that could be used to defend a satellite from an attack? Or are they going to be engaging in more hedging strategies? Maybe they'll... Sorry, what?
0: Everyone knows it's just a semantic gymnastics game. You can't militarize space, but you could have some very powerful mining equipment. (laughs) 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 It's just... It's absurdly powerful mining equipment. And if an enemy were to receive fire from said mining equipment, I mean, they would be excavated.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the direction you can go. I mean, you could develop other weapons that are sort of semi-related, earthbound weapons. Maybe they're not designed to shoot down satellites, per se, but could be, potentially. Uh, That's kind of what the U.S. has done with its anti-ballistic missile weapons that it's been working on. Um, They're not meant to shoot down a satellite, but some of them have been designed to kind of have that as a possible option. So, for example, I remember it was a while ago, it might have been 10 years or so, but there was a satellite that was crashing out of orbit. I think it was a Chinese satellite. And the Chinese opted to uh, shoot it down with a missile. And they said that it was just the right thing to do so that the satellite didn't end up doing any damage when it uh, crashed back to the earth. And so the United States kind of saw that as a ruse. They believed that the Chinese government was just using that as an excuse to test a new anti-satellite weapon. And so a couple weeks later, on a completely unrelated note, the United States tested a missile of its own on a satellite that just happened to be leaving orbit and crashing through the atmosphere. And then it never happened again. (laughs) Neither China or the U.S., I think, has done that since then, at least publicly. So that's kind of an example of tit-for-tat strategy there. And it also reveals how serious the U.S. government and also the Chinese government takes anti-satellite weapons. So what they could do is more stuff like that, where they develop weapons like that, but kind of do it under the guise of another rationale, another excuse. Or just give existing weapon systems new capabilities. This weapon system is meant to shoot down ballistic missiles, but we've added a little something here. Maybe it could shoot down something even higher. Maybe. Something. So we'll see what comes of that. That's kind of what I'm looking at. I'm curious if they'll be really explicit about it or if it'll be something they do kind of under the table.
0: Space Force. Space Force. I mean, it, I feel like stuff is going to happen eventually. Like, as we venture out more into space, Moon Base. Mars based stuff like that. Having the monopoly on violence is still a part of being a creature in the world. So you're going to have to have someone who's the boss.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We don't know for sure who that's going to be, but like there has to be a way to enforce rule of law and also to protect citizens and stuff like that from bandits, space bandits <laughs> The rules of human psychology and human nature still apply. Yeah. Even in space, so. Yeah, you got to head your bets. Sort that in some capacity.
1: Have you ever seen a Akira? Yes. Yeah, there was a big space-based laser system in that movie. Do you remember that at all?
0: I believe so. It was
1: kind of at the end near.
0: Yeah. It's been a while since I've seen that movie. Yeah, I don't know if some it's one of the it's one of the earlier classic anime movies oh yeah
1: yeah it's one of the big ones that started anime as a thing here in the u.s back in the 80s but the reason i bring it up is i don't think that's the kind of weapon system that's going to be developed but there has been some designs to that effect there was a system i think called thor back in the day that was supposed to be like um, metal rods that could be dropped from a satellite and then steered to a given target. And there were no explosives, I think. But uh, there was enough kinetic energy that could be built up just from the rod you know, moving so quickly through the atmosphere after falling from space that it would have had uh, immense power. And with the right guidance equipment, it uh, could have been pretty accurate. So I think that weapon system was designed, but it was never implemented, I think. But I don't think that's the direction Space Command is going to go in. I think that's going to be more about defensive systems, uh, more Star Wars type stuff. Um, Maybe for those not familiar with Star Wars, I'm not talking about the movie, but rather in the 1980s, the Reagan administration in the U.S. uh, started up a whole new program that the media, I think, started calling Star Wars. And the program was meant to develop space-based weapons that could destroy other satellites, defend satellites from attacks, and potentially even shoot down ballistic missiles. And it was an expensive project, and it never really had a lot of. Uh, it was never really likely to be very successful because the technology that would have been required was so far advanced uh, to what was available at the time. It was meant more of a more as a challenge to the Soviet Union. We're going to spend a bunch of money to develop new systems, and if you want to keep, if you want to keep up with us technologically, you're going to have to also spend money in order to, uh, to keep up with us. And the Soviet Union at that time didn't really have the money to do that. And so it ended up being kind of an effective way of pressuring them into backing off from the Cold War a little bit. There was a number of reasons the Soviets ended up withdrawing from the Cold War, so to speak, and negotiating uh, what was what amounted to a kind of uh, peace agreement in the Cold War, right at the end there in the late 80s. But among them was a sense that the Soviet government just could not compete with the U.S. government in terms of the size of its budget and the degree of technological innovation that it could produce. And so that was the significance of Star Wars. And that was kind of the first time that the U.S. really sort of tested out the idea of, I think it was the first time that it significantly tested out the idea of weaponized weapons, weaponized space weapons. That's a stupid turn of phrase. You know what I mean. (laughs) Yeah. I I wouldn't be surprised if they'd thought about it before that, but I think Star Wars was one of the biggest, most well-funded programs to that effect. And eventually, I think a lot of the funding got pulled later after the Cold War formally ended, because the U.S. government was looking for ways to cut spending. didn't seem to be much reason to have such a huge military. And then it ended up investing a little more later on. Well, not in space weapons per se, but rather in anti-ballistic missile systems. But now we have the space command, and so that seems to be more of a formal re- return to the idea of weapons in space. At least nominally. Again, we'll see what they actually do with it. Very, very, very strong mining equipment in space. <laughs> there you go. That's the spirit. <clears throat> Let's see. How do you feel about the Amazon, Nero?
0: Yeah, well, it's pretty lit right now. <laughs> That's what I've heard. So this is a, a little bit of nature stuff that I've skimmed. If anyone is an expert in the environment and forests and all that, Smokey the Bear, if you're tuning in, please help us. But anyways, forest fires are a natural occurrence independent of human activity. The difference is when is it like really out of hand? Because there's like the proper amount of forest fire where it's part of the natural cycle. Some stuff burns, but as it burns and it's on the ground, it enriches the soil and new and better plants can rise to fill the space. So that's kind of like the ideal standard forest fire. And that's going to happen in forests around the world. It's not specific to the Amazon. Happens in California and stuff as well. So some of that stuff is kind of business as usual, but it seems like this one is excessive. Like it's excessively large and broad-based. And the question is how much of this is related to human activity in the region versus human activity globally speaking. So has climate change affected the prevalence and prominence of these fires as well, which is a question. That's
1: a good summary. But there's one extra element at play here, which is the Bolsonaro government in Brazil. Uh, Bolsonaro is, of course, uh, famously far-right president, uh, in Brazil. And his attitude towards the Amazon is that it would be better for Brazil's economy and for the Brazilian people to develop the Amazon. Maybe not just not obliterate it per se, but more development would not be a bad thing in his opinion. And it is the opinion of his administration. So the fear right now is that he's uh, he hasn't really changed regulations vis-a-vis development of the Amazon But there's a fear that he's not fully enforcing restrictions that are still technically on the books and that that might be part of the reason why there's so many fires now. It might be that a lot of developers, miners, loggers, et cetera, uh, in the Amazon are taking what they see as a lax enforcement attitude on the part of the Bolsonaro government as an opportunity to push further into the Amazon and destroy more forest. Uh, as part of their exploitation of the natural resources there. So that's a problem for a lot of people because they see that as sort of the embodiment of this uh, destructive attitude that uh, is so damaging to the environment that emphasizes profits and development over the well-being of the environment, even though over the long term the health of the environment uh, could be argued to be more important, probably is more important. I say probably because that's a whole debate that I'm not even remotely prepared to get into, so I don't want to spark it. I'm sure chat will be happy to get into it for me. I look forward to reading it. But uh, suffice to say, people are pretty skeptical inside Brazil and outside Brazil that the Bolsonaro government is doing everything it could to really restrict people from engaging in things like uh, activities like illegal logging uh, or slash-and-burn agriculture Uh, and just cutting down the forest in general to make way for ranch land and uh, soy bean farming. So that's a, that's a part of the story as well. And there's sufficient concern. And this is actually more my angle here. You know, in general, I don't know. I'm not an environmental uh, studies guy, so I don't have as much background there. So I can't really speak to that angle. And you know, I trust Neuro knows more about that than me. So I would defer to his summary there on that. But internationally, there's been an interesting reaction. You know, Obviously, people are upset because they don't want the Amazon to burn. It's kind of important in many ways. Uh, but interestingly, for the first time, I think, at least uh, in a significant way, a number of countries in Europe are talking about potentially applying pressure to try to push the Brazilian government into taking more measures to restrict the burning and to enforce laws that are meant to protect the Amazon. Uh, France and Ireland threatened not to ratify the European Union Mercosur free trade agreement, and Brazil doesn't do more. Uh, Finland called on the European Union to consider banning Brazilian beef. So those are examples of the European Union flexing its soft power. You know, it's not using its military per se, but it is using its economic heft as a major market. Uh, well, thinking about using its economic heft as a major market to try to pressure Brazil into uh, changing its policy on the Amazon. So if they actually did do that, that would represent a pretty significant uh, achievement on the part of Europe, because up till now, Europe has been principally known for its ineffectiveness in international relations. Uh, Individual European countries kind of vary in the efficacy of their foreign policy, but acting as a whole, the European Union and its member states generally haven't been able to really leverage their power very much. So if they could use it here, that would be a pretty significant milestone for them. Uh, you know, regardless of what it would mean for the Amazon, it would be a significant milestone for European foreign policy. Um, it also raises, raises some interesting ethical and historical questions, because, of course, uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil and his supporters in Brazil see this kind of pressure as a form of imperialism. They see the Amazon as Brazilian territory and they believe that they can do what, it, what they want. It's, a more an issue, it's more of an issue of sovereignty for them. And they believe that efforts by wealthy European powers that are, unlike Brazil, fully economically developed, to try to restrict the way that the Brazilians use the Amazon is a way of trying to keep Brazil poor and exploit and expropriate Brazilian natural resources. Now, you can disagree or agree with that, but that is the perspective of a lot of Brazilian nationalists. They don't trust uh, foreigners in general, particularly Europeans. And so there's a there's a suspicion that uh, Europe's is not being entirely forthright and honest about its motives here. So that raises an interesting cool. question about uh, European power and uh, you know the legacy of European imperialism and whether it's ethical for developed, the developed world to use its political and economic power in the world to try to impose its political preferences. You know, it's one thing when you do it with regard to national security. The U.S. obviously has been doing a lot of that lately. Uh, but in this case, it's not a national security issue per se, depending on how you want to define that. Uh, it's more of an environmental issue. And obviously, Bolsonaro and his Brazilian supporters have a different notion of what constitutes good environmental policy than people in Europe. So does that fact then give Europeans the right to impose their preferences on Brazil? Now, obviously, the argument is The argument is going to be that the Amazon is a global resource it belongs to everybody and that, yes, Europe does have a right to do that. And even if it's not, even if you don't think of the Amazon as a global resource, uh, Europe has no obligation to open its markets to Brazil. And hence, it is well within its rights to apply economic pressure of whatever type it may prefer in order to pressure the Brazilian government uh, to adhere to certain policy preferences. So, that's two sides of that debate there. And, uh, you know, I could see either one. You know, I'm not your mother. I'm not going to tell you what to believe. I'm just kind of trying to inform you. That's sort of what we try to do here, or at least, you know, generally our objective here. But with. So,
0: the people who are really upset about the destruction of Brazil, because you said some people believe that the Amazon is a global resource. If you want to do some little kid science, trees take carbon dioxide, they breathe it in, and they breathe out oxygen. Mm. And the reason they're so massive is because they use the carbon to make their big selves with all the bark and stuff. So the Amazon, if you're thinking about the density of trees per square kilometer, it's super, super dense for how lush it is, which means that if you're looking at the total global representation of trees, that's a really, really big spot where a lot of the carbon dioxide that is put off gets absorbed. Mm -hmm. So if that goes, that's a much bigger blow than say there's a fire out somewhere where there aren't that many trees or you're kind of a desertist country. You don't really have the same responsibility, the same global responsibility to maintain that um, part of, I guess the, the density of nature on the planet. So I think for Brazil in the short term, there are going to be parties who are saying this is a resource that is within our borders. We are sovereign. We can do what we want with it, but If that's going to impact the rest of the world and we're already dealing with more and more consequences of climate change, then there are going to be some people who are
1: very upset. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's a very good summary. And the interesting thing uh, for me here is that this could presage a general change in the relations between the developed world and the developing world. Because if we do define environmental resources as global resources rather than just uh, sovereign national resources... That could lead to a lot of tensions with developing countries that are paranoid about the motivations and intentions of powerful, wealthy European countries, if not Western countries in general, that might be trying to pressure them into managing their resources in a particular way that is conducive to the preferences of Western environmentalists and environmental concerns. And that tension could potentially blow up into international conflict, trade wars, you know, et cetera. There could be a lot of different ways that play out that result in instability. And it kind of plays to an, another question that I had kind of wondered before back when Islamic State was a thing. Um, what if, let's say, a developing country or a poor, impoverished country with a failed state, with a weak government or even a failed state, um, what if a terrorist group set up there? operated from that country and started attacking western countries or you know just neighboring countries in general whatever they may be Um, if that happens does that mean that those western countries then have a reason uh, to invade that country to deal with that threat possibly but what if you abstract out and say that the reason that the state was failed there or that the government is weak or etc has to do with endemic corruption uh patronage networks just general historical problems of one sort or another, and that those factors are what's producing the kind of political instability that is facilitating the emergence of all these terrorists. Does that then suggest that you would be able to invade those countries to improve their governance as a way of dealing with the terrorist threat? So that's kind of an abstract uh, question, and the answer in most cases would probably be no. But kind of in the same way that you're dealing with the Amazon burning as a global issue rather than just an early Brazilian issue, you could look at terrorist terrorism in a similar fashion. And in this case, kind of like with the Amazon, the problem is more the government in the specific country in question uh, rather than just uh, individual policy per se. You know, it's not the Amazon by itself burning. It's the Brazilian government that's kind of suspected anyway of facilitating it and in a similar way a lot of dysfunctional governments in certain regions of the world are sufficiently dysfunctional that they could perhaps be blamed to a degree for chronically producing terrorists and terrorist groups of one sort or another now i'm not making this argument myself per se but this is a kind of parallel and the question that i would ask given this line of reasoning is whether or not it inevitably leads to a return of European imperialism. If we do start dealing with problems like terrorism and environmental concerns as global problems, does not, that not suggest that there is a legitimate casus belli to be had by powerful and wealthy countries in dealing with less powerful countries that are not sufficiently managing what are perceived as global problems and in turn are creating negative externalities for their neighbors? So, I wouldn't go so far as to say we're going to be in for European imperialism 2.0 anytime soon. I don't think that's likely. But this line of reasoning could kind of lead in that direction if you take it in a certain way. And so that could be something interesting to watch. I don't think it'll be a major political force, but that reasoning could be that co- reasoning could undergird a new political movement that could itself become prominent and that might impact international politics and national politics in some countries. To some two varying degrees. Again, that's a very long-term thing. I don't think that's going to play out, if it plays out at all, uh, in the long to medium term. But in the long term, that might be something people start considering, especially if uh, the environment, the global environment, starts to deteriorate significantly, as uh, some people predict. So an interesting early look at that potential trend. Again, unlikely, but this could be the first manifestation of that trend if it does pan out like that. Anyway, to continue with the Amazon issue, uh, the Brazilian government got a lot of shit for the way it was handling it. And so they ended up responding with a little, what I suspect is a bit of a PR exercise. They, the, South, uh, the Brazilian government helped organize a meeting of South American nations to discuss the Amazon fires. And uh, I think it was in that that they agreed to sign a new treaty uh, that would be a treaty, uh, basically a forest protection treaty. And uh, it was Bolivia, Brazil, Colombia, Ecuador, Guyana, Peru, and Suriname, not Venezuela, notably absent. I noted. Uh, Those countries all agreed to do a couple minor things, basically. Uh, They agreed to set up a disaster response network and to set up satellite monitoring of the Amazon. Those those were the most concrete things they agreed to. They also said that they would put more effort into education, which is very vague, and uh, also... They said that they would uh, do more to increase the role of indigenous communities, which is also very vague. So the nice thing about vague policy statements is that they sound really great, but they don't actually require you to do anything later. Excellent for a PR exercise, if that is indeed what they're doing. And if, if anybody asks you what you've actually done to deliver on an ambiguous policy promise, then you can always just come up with some bullshit. You said that you would in, do more to increase uh, education. Well, you could spend $1,000 on a flyer campaign, and technically that's doing more.
0: You could give one kid a textbook, and you you technically have. Yep, technically you have. So You're not going to impress people with that, but <laughs> you did fulfill your promise. Yeah. That's, it's kind of like making a deal with the devil in a way. It's like do, making a deal with a politician. Give us a wish. Any wish and we will grant it. Oh, well, I know of a good one. Let's let's improve education in our community. Very well. I grant you one textbook. <laughs> <laughs> wish granted. Ah shit. I should have been more specific.
1: <laughs> yeah, true with wish-making and true with politics. If you see a politician making an ambiguous policy promise, that's probably what they've got in mind. Maybe they'll do subsam- something substantive later but they don't really have to since the promise was ambiguous. So the bar is pretty low in cases like that. That's generally a red flag. Also, besides you know having this new treaty, which, again, I think is just meant more to alleviate some of the international pressure. I don't know how much it's really going to do to protect the Amazon. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, I think it was the French government or maybe it was the G7. Yeah, actually, I think it was the G7. There was a G7 meeting and the European countries there offered $20 million in aid uh, to Brazil in order to help with the fires. And President Bolsonaro in Brazil rejected that $20 million in aid uh, because (laughs) French President Macron, because, well, let me put it, let me uh, clarify this. He rejected the $20 million until uh, that is to say, he would not—he ex- will not accept it until he receives an apology from French President Macron uh, for perceived slights against him.
0: Uh, so his ego is bruised and he needs some compensation for the emotional hurt.
1: <laughs> That's a better way of putting it, yeah. Uh, <laughs> President Macron got onto Twitter or some damn thing and levied some insults at uh, Bolsonaro, calling him a liar and saying that he was lying about the Amazon and whatnot. And so Bolsonaro didn't much like that. So when the $20 million was offered, he rejected it on condition and said that he would only accept it on condition of receiving that apology. And as far as I know, it hasn't been forthcoming yet. So we'll see what happens with that. Part of the reason that he's being accused of lying is because uh, Brazil, the Brazilian government has an agency dedicated to tracking uh, the Amazon, you know, using satellites, tech, satellite technology, geospatial technology, whatnot. And uh, I believe they were reporting that the they were the ones who originally reported that the Amazon fires were much higher than they had been in the past few years. Uh, Rather, I should say that there were a lot more fires in the Amazon than there had been in previous years. And when that statement was released, the Bolsonaro, well, Jair Bolsonaro himself was pretty upset about it and actually fired the guy who was at the head who was heading the agency. And the agency, for its part, said that, you know, its data was good. It's not it wasn't bullshitting. Bolsonaro accused them of producing fake data and trying to make the government look bad. And they said, no, this is just the data. You know, this data is good. And that's when he fired the head of the agency. So that made a lot of people outside Brazil and in Brazil pretty suspicious about what the government's intentions towards the Amazon. So understandable, then, that French Macron might call him then a liar saying that he's lying about the Amazon, given that there was this kerfuffle with the official reporting agency and the Brazilian government responsible for reporting on the Amazon. So some interesting drama in South America as well.
0: Yep. From a kind of exploratory science perspective as well, there's a super, super high density of diverse species in the Amazon rainforest too. So uh, stuff being on fire there is going to be just impacting the number of cool creatures that we have. And many of them are pretty deep in the rainforest. So we haven't even discovered everything yet, but if we toast everything, then yeah, there's not really going to be too much to discover.
1: Unfortunately, that is the case. Yeah. So more effort is being made to try to preserve it internationally. Uh, But right now, I don't know how effective the pressure is going to be, given that it's such a sensitive issue for Brazilian nationalists. We'll see what comes of it. Maybe if somebody apologized to Bolsonaro on behalf of Macron, things would move a little faster.
0: (laughs) I'm very sorry that you feel upset about this, (laughs) but you shouldn't take yourself so seriously.
1: Well, good luck with that. To be fair to Bolsonaro, he did get stabbed while he was campaigning, so I could maybe understand why he'd be a bit grumpy.
0: You may not have stabbed me, Macron, with a blade, but I have been emotionally stabbed by you.
1: (laughs) All right, let's see. What else? Are we doing okay on time?
0: We're at a little over two hours, I think two hours 20, so... Yeah, depending on your energy. I think three tends to be a good amount for your energy and your voice. Mm. We do have some questions from last time, and we have gotten to tackle some big topics in greater detail, which is nice too. Mm. So it's okay if this segment is a little bit more focused on that because I know you had a crap ton of notes from last time and we got about half of it or less.
1: Yeah, yeah. We didn't get through a whole lot. So we've managed to blow through more of it today. let's see so what 40 minutes okay I'll see what I can Uh, I guess I can kind of skip that got some corrections and some updates so we'll do those and then we can jump into questions and that would probably take up the rest of the time okay okay let's see here Okay, so last time I said that uh, the 1965 civil rights... Pro- These are corrections, by the way. Uh, I said last time that uh, the 1965 civil rights protests were the last major protest movement in the developed world. That's wrong. Um, I think I was thinking more of the U.S. Uh, but two of your viewers here, flames for You and KSAS89, pointed out that uh, the Yellow Vest protests in France recently have been a major protest in the developed world. And also there were a lot of protests uh, during the fall of communism in the late 1980s, early 90s. So in point of fact, there have been more recent uh, mass protests in the Western world, rather than just the civil rights movement. And then the other correction was, we were talking about Iraqi politics, and I said that an anti-corruption coalition won power that's half-correct, basically. Actually, neither the anti-corruption nor the establishment party won enough votes, won enough seats, rather, to form a government. So they ended up forming a government of national unity. uh, Basically, a compromise unity government. So that's not the same thing as having an anti-corruption coalition in power, but the anti-coalition did receive enough votes to enter government. And so that was still a big achievement, even if they didn't get Power in Iraqi politics. So that was the other big correction I wanted to make. Uh, Let's see. Afghan peace talks are continuing apace. This is kind of an update. Um, Some details of the proposed peace plan have been released. Uh, Apparently, the peace plan being negotiated would include Afghan the Afghan military pulling out of five military bases, which is a pretty big concession. Um, I think the Afghan government would prefer if they maintained all of their bases and if the Taliban disarmed, leaving the Afghan government as the uh, sole proprietor of violence in Afghanistan, uh, the holder of the monopoly on violence, so to speak. But as is, if if this information about the peace talks is correct, it seems like uh, a potential peace deal might actually involve de facto territorial concessions to the Taliban, which would be a major concession by the government. Um, Not clear what else is in the peace talks. This is just something that kind of leaked out, but a a big concession, if true. And it suggests that maybe peace talks are actually being treated seriously. On the downside, Donald Trump pulled out of planned peace talks with the Taliban that were apparently going to happen at Camp David. Have you heard of this, Neuro? No. Uh, Well, well, just for those of you listening who aren't familiar with Camp David, Camp David is like a famous retreat, if you like, sort of resort for presidents. You know, presidents going back some generations have used Camp David to host peace talks. And uh, in this case, the Trump administration was apparently planning on having peace talks at Camp David with uh, Taliban representatives, which is pretty surprising. Um historically the u.s has been pretty averse to negotiating directly with the taliban they've preferred that the taliban negotiate with the afghan government but the taliban have said that no the afghan government is a western puppet we don't want to deal with them we want to deal with the puppet master of the united states so that led to a bit of an impasse in negotiations but finally it looks like the u.s is just going to talk to them directly so that it can get some kind of peace deal but Those peace talks have been called off because of a series of violent attacks by the Taliban in Afghanistan that suggests that maybe they're not being entirely genuine uh, in their push for peace. The The suspicion is maybe they're more interested in getting as much of an advantage before the peace talks as possible and are committing violent acts to show their strength. And while that's not a bad idea in terms of generating leverage, it does show a certain amount of bad faith. And so Donald Trump has responded to that signal by calling off the talks, and it's not clear if and when they'll start up again. So long story short, Afghan peace talks have been generating some leverage, gaining some traction, picking up speed, but now they've hit a bit of a block on account of Taliban actions in Afghanistan. So we'll see what comes of that. I suspect the peace talks will pick up again, because I think the Trump administration would really love to have some kind of peace deal in Afghanistan as a feather in their cap, something that they could campaign on in the 2020 election. But I don't think they're going to want to rush it either. They don't want to look mad signing some kind of deal that ends up with the Taliban having inordinate power in Afghanistan, because that would open up the administration to criticism. But something else, something else to keep an eye on, basically. Another vector for instability, potentially. For those of you not keeping track, the United States has been in Afghanistan for 18 years now. Thereabouts. 17, 18 years. Longest war in American history at this point. Doesn't really come up much.
0: Yeah, it's pretty far away, and I think the understanding of why we're there and what's going on isn't super clear. The main thing that I have experienced personally is you have some friends from high school and stuff who end up joining the army or something and they end up in Afghanistan. And it's kind of like, well, I don't really know enough about what's going on there to feel like we should be there, but clearly that's where a lot of people tend to go to fight. So something's going on. I think it kind of ends up being that sort of issue where you've been committed to it for so long that you want to see it through, but like, What does it mean to see it through? What is your win condition?
1: That's exactly the problem. You know, the whole U.S. strategy in Afghanistan has been hobbled from the start by competing and often conflicting sets of objectives. Do you want to fully democratize Afghanistan and turn it into a liberal democracy? Do you want to liberalize the society and have equal rights for women and, you know, other liberal cultural changes? Uh, Do you just want to have Afghanistan be a strategic ally and otherwise don't really care what the politics looks like? Uh, Do you want to go after opium growers or do you want to leave them alone so that they don't end up uh, turning on you? But then if you leave them alone, then a lot of the sales from the opium goes to the Taliban. Like there's not a lot of good solutions in Afghanistan in a number of ways. And, you know, even the Taliban themselves are very decentralized. It's not like one movement. Uh, There's a lot of different groups of Taliban within the organization itself, and there's a lot of people outside the Taliban who will fight with them or against them just depending on local conditions. You know, warlords are a very real thing in Afghanistan, and there's plenty of fighters who will just pick a side that they think will give them more resources, more money, or the side that they just think is winning. And that makes it kind of difficult to negotiate with the Taliban as though they're a single entity, because even if you reach a deal with the Taliban, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that you're going to have peace in Afghanistan per se. It might mean a lot less violence, but it would probably still have a fair amount even regardless, although that is perhaps a pessimistic assessment. But given the lack of traction in the conflict, I don't think pessimism is entirely unwarranted at this point. You know, one of the things I read recently about the war in Afghanistan is that it wasn't that it's not a single 18 year old war that the United States has been fighting, but rather 18 one year wars, because a lot of officers and troops that get rotated in to Afghanistan to fight in given areas rotate out after a year and are replaced with new people who are not familiar with the terrain, the locals, et cetera, and have to learn it all from scratch all over again and often take different use different tactics and strategies in doing so. So the result is that there's not really any institutional learning going on that can be applied from one rotation to the next.
0: Yeah, we have a VIP in the chat right now actually who said he was deployed to Iraq twice for 15 months each. Oh, So it seems like they have that set amount of how long you're deployed. And if you're only deployed once, then I mean, you do your best, but you also don't really get to learn the bigger picture and like develop relationships, all the interested parties and stuff. It's fresh people being cycled in and out, which makes it really tough to get traction.
1: Yeah. That's, that's one of the big problems that was had, as I recall, you know, thank you for your service, by the way, you know, whoever you are, um, appreciated. I hope that's not, (laughs) I hope that's not too American for the non-Americans listening. That's just kind of something we say over here. Generally might sound a little weird if you're Korean, for example, but so it, so it goes. Mm -hmm. Um, Another problem in Afghanistan, from what I'm remembering, uh, is counterinsurgency strategy, which was kind of a fad in the upper echelons of the military after nine eleven. There was a big push for it in Afghanistan and in Iraq, if I remember again, if I'm remembering correctly. But it was never executed particularly well. You know, there was never like a solid set of strategies that could be utilized consistently, that would be consistently successful. There were little things that you could do on a local level that would work sometimes, but often they didn't work in other areas. And the whole thing was a very inexact science. You know, This is where the idea of a strategic corporal came from, the idea of a low ranking soldier who's sufficiently aware of the overarching strategic environment, even beyond his local area, that he could make individual decisions regarding how he interacted with locals and local elites such that in some, all the different strategic corporals doing so across the theater would combine, well, the actions thereof would combine to create a strategic gain for the United States. Now that was never terribly realistic because it's very difficult to teach somebody who goes to West point, all of the kind of cultural intricacies and economics and political science that you kind of need to know in order to do that, let alone a common, unenlisted personnel who might be serving for, you know, just a couple of months. So counterinsurgency strategy had a lot of weaknesses. It had some strengths. It wasn't a complete wash, um, but a lot of people treated it like it just needed more time. Give us another thousand troops, give us another rotation, uh, another deployment, etc. There was a sense that they just needed more time in order to test out different aspects of the counterinsurgency theory and that eventually that they would get it right if they could just stay long enough. And it just never really panned out that way. And part of that just had to do with the overarching strategic environment in Afghanistan. Uh, The United States went into Afghanistan to fight al-Qaeda, basically. The Taliban were there, but they were kind of incidental. They were sheltering al-Qaeda. And the U.S. demanded that they stop sheltering al-Qaeda, and they said no. So hence the war. But really, it was never a war between al-Qaeda and the United States. It was actually a regional conflict between India and Pakistan. And Afghanistan just kind of happened to be an important cog in that regional rivalry. And the United States just sort of haphazardly jumped in. And unfortunately, the U.S. never really adjusted its strategy to really reflect that fact. And I think it had to do with successive civilian governments believing that the U.S. had enough power and its, the U.S. military was powerful enough to try to settle the issue by itself, regardless of that overarching strategic rivalry. That kind of was more relevant. And the reason it's relevant, you know, for those not familiar with South Asian politics, um, Pakistan and India are pretty big rivals, to put it mildly. (laughs) They almost had a nuclear war in 1999 over a glacier, of all things. Uh, That just kind of illustrates the degree of tension. So Pakistan is super worried about Afghanistan potentially allying with India, There's a sense that the Indian government could push to ally with Afghanistan and then Pakistan could potentially face a two front war if there were an actual conflict with India. So in order to ensure that that never happens and to bolster what they like to call their quote unquote strategic depth, they insist on having the Afghan government be, if not a puppet government of Pakistan, uh, at least under the heavy influence of the Pakistani government neither of which are options people in Afghanistan are particularly gung-ho about. But all the same, Pakistan and the Pakistani military, which is the more important political institution in Pakistan, consider that a really important part of their national security strategy. So even as the United States invaded Afghanistan overthrew the Taliban, which had in effect been Pakistan's proxies in Afghanistan, Pakistan still supported a lot of the rebels that started fighting against the U.S. after the fact, Not only the Taliban, uh, but also Hekmatir, I think his name was, a warlord who had been famous during the uh, Soviet war back in the 80s, kind of popped up again. So he got Pakistani support, or maybe I should be more specific and say support from the ISI, which is Pakistan's intelligence agency. They're the ones who kind of principally do that sort of shadow warfare type stuff. And then there was a third group, the Haqqani Network. That's what it was. So between Hekmatir, the Haqqani network, and the Taliban, uh, the Pakistani government had a number of proxies in Afghanistan, and they sent them support when they were fighting against the U.S. after 2001, Um, not necessarily because they were just super opposed to the U.S. being in Afghanistan, but rather because they wanted to make sure they had political actors in Afghanistan relevant to Afghan politics who were subservient to their interests. As it was, for those of you who maybe don't remember the 2001 U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, It's not as though the U.S. just sent in troops and took the country over. Uh, What the U.S. did is it allied with a faction in Afghanistan called the Northern Alliance. And these were guys in, as you can imagine, the north of Afghanistan. And they had been pushed into a small pocket in northeastern Afghanistan by the Taliban. Uh, The Taliban hadn't been able to get rid of them completely, uh, but they were still a potent fighting force and the U.S. sent in special forces and air support to help them push against the Taliban and take control of Afghanistan. So really, it was an alliance between the Northern Alliance and the U.S. government uh, that took over uh, Afghanistan and kicked out the Taliban. So the Northern Alliance, in effect, became the new government of Afghanistan in the years after the conquest. Uh, And when Afghanistan had its first elections, the Northern Alliance did pretty well. But part of that is because a lot of people who supported the Taliban um, boycotted especially Pashtuns in the south, not entirely by choice. <clears throat> um, some people supported the Taliban just for practical reasons. You know, if you're a villager in a small you know, village in Afghanistan, it doesn't necessarily behoove you to clearly support the government when the Taliban can just kind of walk around and notice it and then have you murdered for opposing what they consider their legitimate government. That's the trouble with having uh, a weak government in Afghanistan, in places like Afghanistan, if you can't project the government's power wide enough, uh, then it's not hard for insurgents to threaten people into uh, obeying their rule rather than the government's rule. And that, in effect, is what happened in Afghanistan with the weak government. So the Taliban would pressure people not to, simp- not to send taxes to the government and not to uh, squeal on them and not to share information about Taliban movements. And if anybody did speak out against the Taliban or do something against the Taliban, frequently there were Taliban, Taliban informants in the village. You know, people who supported the Taliban or were taking money from the Taliban who would inform on those people. And then those people would be dealt with accordingly, usually by a local Taliban governor. Um, believe it or not, the Taliban actually has shadow governors for most provinces in Afghanistan and even court systems, uh, some of which are actually more popular than the government's court systems because they move faster you know the government systems tend to be corrupt and are pretty slow whereas the Taliban's sharia courts generally dispense justice relatively quickly sometimes that's a good thing sometimes a bad depending on the individuals involved but uh, for people who are used to dealing in with the uh, the very chaotic environment that's defined Afghanistan for the past couple of decades sharia courts aren't bad maybe not the best option maybe not the first option but better than nothing in some cases so the Taliban do have some governance in place and some legitimacy and what legitimacy and what support they don't get through legitimate governance. They can generally get through fear and political violence. Anyway, this is a really long winded background of Afghanistan. I'm not really sure where I'm going with it, but a long story short, counterinsurgency policy was kind of a mixed bag and eventually Uh, The military kind of had to grow out of it. That kind of happened under the Obama administration. That was one of the reasons that they moved towards counterterrorism. There was kind of a debate early in the Obama administration about whether the U.S. should really be doing counterinsurgency at all, and whether or not it was efficacious, and whether it might not be a better idea to focus resources instead on strictly counterinsurgency and only providing conventional weapons and support to the Afghan government in so much as it needed them uh, to stay in place, basically, to prop them up. And counterterrorism ended up defining more the Obama administration's approach to dealing with Afghanistan and terrorism in the region in general. That's why there were so many more drone bombings by the Obama administration than the Bush administration. The Bush administration was more wedded to counterinsurgency and wanted to try to defeat al-Qaeda and the Taliban and other insurgents uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq with uh, counterinsurgency methods, so to speak. You know, the kind of stuff talked about by David Kilcullen And uh, whoever it was that wrote that book, Eating Soup with a Knife, I think it was called. There was lots of catchy book titles back in the day about counterinsurgency. But, you know, the one unifying thing about um, the one thing that you can say about all counterinsurgency strategy is that winning hearts and minds is generally a priority to some degree. Unless you want to kill all of the men between 15 and 60 in uh, villages where you're having trouble. Winning hearts and minds is pretty much the only viable alternative, but the trouble with winning hearts and minds is that it requires a keen understanding of local politics and society to a degree that frequently a lot of American military personnel just don't have, and certainly American politicians don't have, Uh, as well as just an understanding of the broader strategic environment, which again, most American commanders haven't really had or haven't really been allowed to have because it requires them to kind of extend the scope of their understanding of Afghanistan to South Asia which a lot of politicians are a little skeptical about they would prefer the military to solve, solve the problem on its own rather than having to engage in a bunch of messy diplomacy with regional actors I guess I should point out that politicians are a big reason why Afghanistan is such a mess if you ask the US if a politician asks the US military to deal with an unsolvable problem they're not going to say no They pretty much have to say, I'll try. And so basically that's what's been happening in Afghanistan. It's not the set of objectives that civilian leadership in the U.S. has given the U.S. military in Afghanistan was never really reasonable. But nobody wants to say that. Nobody really wants to own that problem or that mistake. And so there's an insistence that the U.S. military be made to deal with it in effect. I'm sure there's people in the military who think they can deal with it, given the right sets of resources and commitments, but as is, that's not happening, at least because the U.S. public is so skeptical of war that a long-term commitment is basically off the table, and that would be one of the most important signals the U.S. could send. One of the criticisms of the Obama administration is that they announced their surge, but then had a cap, basically. They said that we'll send a bunch more troops to Afghanistan and we'll try to defeat the Taliban but we're pulling out in two years. So the Taliban noted that and said, okay, so basically we just hang out and chill for two years and then you leave. Okay, done. And that's basically what they did. So that's not a great strategy in the grand scheme of things. I suspect the Obama administration didn't really care. I suspect they only really did the surge to kind of pacify critics in the military and in the Republican Party. I don't think it was ever really a serious attempt Uh, to try to resolve the problem. It was probably more of a political move, but that's speculation on my part. I can't really say that's actually what they did, but I kind of suspect that given how weak that strategy was just in principle, in design. So if the U.S. could credibly commit to the long term with the Afghan government, that really gives us a lot more leverage in negotiations with the Taliban, and maybe we'd have a better chance of sticking around and actually getting a peace deal that we would like but nobody really wants to commit to Afghanistan given that the U.S. has already been there for so long and that there's been relatively few gains and the Afghan government is super corrupt and the society is not really, if you're not very liberal at all. you know, There's just a lot of things that the public doesn't like about the conflict. And really the public was only ever interested in Al-Qaeda to begin with. So a solution that focuses narrowly on that, but otherwise grants peace to the country and allows the U.S. to pull out for the most part That's something that the public probably really wants, and it's something that the Obama administration, to a lesser degree, and the Trump administration, to a greater degree, is very much prioritizing above and beyond trying to maintain some long-term commitment to Afghanistan and defeating the Taliban. So public preferences, fickle politicians, um, the battle between counterinsurgency strategy and counterterrorism, those are all relevant factors there to why the Afghan conflict has been dragging out. There's a lot of institutional problems just inherent to democratic politics. Um, the, you know, the U.S. military as an institution has its own problems, its own internal conflicts, um, rotations. You know, all of it just comes together to make a big problem that nobody's really been able to solve for the past 18 years. And it looks like it's ultimately going to be resolved by just kind of leaving and hoping for the best. I'm sure the U.S. government will say that will promise to maintain air support and logistical support for the Afghan military so that the Afghan government doesn't just collapse. That's pretty workable. And I think the U.S. public would be on board with that because it doesn't mean that there's a large deployment of U.S. troops in Afghanistan. But beyond that, continuing to fight the Taliban, forcing the Taliban to do this, that or the other. I don't know how committed the U.S. is going to be to doing that in the future. If the Taliban agree to a peace deal, and then renege on it later, I don't know how interested the U.S. would really be in another large-scale deployment to Afghanistan. It would probably just be more air support, more special forces in that case.
0: Give me one second. We're back live. We just had a nice round about what's going on in Afghanistan for the past 25 to 30 years and <clears throat> what it means for us and the military and all that, but... Yeah, there's a lot to unpack, and the show goes on, apparently. We've talked before about cultural norms and how sweeping in uh, with military might and changing leadership and building stuff doesn't change cultural norms all at once. And that's the most important factor for, like you were saying, winning the hearts and minds of people is you have to understand what their hearts and minds are looking for and what their problems are. So you can devise the most appropriate solutions for them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that's not easy to do. It probably would have been a better idea from the start to just focus on counterterrorism and to allow the Northern Alliance to kind of do what they will. That was kind of more the approach the U.S. took in the Cold War. The U.S. was not super idealistic during the Cold War. The attitude was, if you're anti-communist, then you're acceptable. That was enough. Otherwise, you could just kind of do mostly what you, whatever you wanted, at least during the first half. There was some more criticism in the second half of the Cold War, but for the most part, uh, the U.S. foreign policy vis-a-vis the Soviet Union was very much a realist policy, or at least what passes for realism anyway. But now with the war on terror, there seems to be a push away from that, and there's more of an emphasis on liberalism, or at least there was for a time more of an emphasis on liberalism and uh, modernizing government systems, institutions, fighting corruption, etc. And that's kind of sort of still been a priority in Afghanistan. It's kind of waxed and waned depending on administration and the state of the war. But from the start, there was a sense that the U.S. had an obligation to democratize Afghanistan, if not also liberalize its society. And it seems that that was a bridge too far, to put it mildly. It probably would have been better to let the Northern Alliance just structure the government how they wanted and then uh, just ally with them in order to pursue common objectives vis-a-vis Al-Qaeda. That would have been a lower bar. It wouldn't have been as ambitious and it would have upset people in the United States who would have been suspicious that the U.S. was setting up an authoritarian puppet state. That's also a reason that the the U.S. thought it had to democratize Afghanistan. Um, But it over the long term it probably would have been more self would have been more sustainable if not also strategically sound so let's see uh, let me do gosh I guess we can save the Hong Kong update are you super invested in that or can I skip that for today
0: you could skip it for next time. It seems like Hong okay. Kong is going to be a topic that's going to be running for a while.
1: Most likely, yeah. So I had a Hong Kong update and I had a Syria update. And then I had some stuff on the India's economy and some of the reforms that they're passing. And then a little blurb. Actually, I could do this really quick. Um, there's two Republicans running for president right now against a Donald Trump. Uh, while running for the Republican nomination for president, I should say, against Donald Trump. One of them is Joe Walsh, an Illinois Tea Party representative. He was part of that Tea Party wave back in the day. And then the other guy is Bill Weld, a former conservative governor of Massachusetts. The perception seems to be that uh, they're both long shots. They're probably not going to get the nomination. Uh, but it's interesting because it kind of illustrates that there is still some consternation in the Republican Party, at least amongst some in the Republican Party, about Donald Trump and his style of politics. So it seems there's some device, some divisions there. And uh, I had an update on that. I found, and I thought this was pretty interesting. The GOP, that is to say, the Republican Party's branches in South Carolina, Nevada, Arizona, and Kansas are apparently preparing to eliminate their primary elections. Now those primary elections are the way that state branches of given parties uh, vote for candidates. You'll have a primary and see who wins. And then based on that, you can kind of whittle down the candidates until you're left with just one or maybe two. If it's two, then you can kind of allocate the, then you allocate the votes at the uh, convention you know both the republican and democratic parties have pres- have conventions before presidential election in which representatives from the party in different states will vote on which candidate they want normally there's just one candidate and they just vote symbolically for the one candidate available and then the whole convention turns into basically a hour long infomercial that gets covered by the news and illustrates the new candidate and their policy platform But in this case, uh, you've got some new guys who are kind of trying to challenge Trump and are apparently hoping that maybe they can get enough votes either at the convention or in a primary to maybe kick Trump out and become the new uh, nominee. Again, pretty unlikely, uh, but eliminating the primaries removes that as a possibility. Basically, those states are just going to automatically go to Trump instead of having a primary where voters can kind of illustrate their satisfaction or dissatisfaction with the incumbent. And maybe pick somebody else. So that sparked some criticism from outside the party and to a lesser degree from in the party. Some people saw that as very undemocratic and that they should allow people to have the choice, even if it's almost certain that most people will choose Trump. Uh, But just getting rid of the election outright is a pretty dramatic move. So that's kind of, uh, I've been talking on and off for the past year that one of the things to kind of watch in the presidential election would be to see if maybe some disgruntled Republican might try to run against Trump for the nomination. And uh, nothing much happened up until this. This is kind of the newest manifestation of that. There are two candidates running, and now some states are responding to that potential threat uh, by removing their primary process in, in their entirety. So some power games going on, basically, within the Republican Party. Most likely, Trump wins the nomination, but this could be something that evolves later on if it becomes uh, a little too aggressive by one side or the other. If one side pushes too hard to challenge Trump, there could be a significant backlash. But if uh, Trump supporters in these different states push too hard to try to prevent them from being able to even challenge Trump, that could turn into a major issue. So relatively unlikely, probably things stay quiet and under the table, but there's potential here. Okay, so that's a brief update on that. Okay, so two questions from last time. First question, what major factors are responsible for right-wing populist movements taking root in multiple nations around the same time? So we've talked a bit about this before. I think we talked about it a fair amount more in the first year or two. I can't believe we've been doing this two years already.
0: Hell yeah, dude. Uh, Um,
1: let me think. So basically there's not one single reason. Different manifestations of populism have been occurring in different regions of the world for different reasons. In so much as they're happening at the same time, part of that is historical. Um, During the Cold War, you had a pretty clear demarcation between um, the Eastern Bloc and nations aligned to it and the Western nations and their laissez-faire democratic capitalist system. So when the Cold War ended, that blew up that demarcation and all of the world basically uh, became one single market. And that created a huge shock to the global economy. It was a positive shock because it meant there was a lot of new skilled labor a lot of new markets to access, a lot of new talent available. There was just a lot of new opportunities available because of that grand opening. And so for a while in the 1990s and for part of the aughts, uh, there was an immense amount of prosperity and global economic growth that partly was predicated, well, obviously technological change and innovation, but also the explosion in international trade that had been made available by the collapse of communism and the opening of trade barriers all over the world. So that ran its course, and then it kind of hit a wall in 2008 with the big financial crisis. And after that, a lot of political tensions that had been festering in a lot of countries that had been papered over by prosperity in the 1990s and later, all of those wounds got opened up once the money was gone. And that's partly why you see all of these populist movements around the world kind of emerging roughly around the same time. It's not the only reason, um, but it's probably the only major unifying reason that you can use to tie them all together. You know, if you look at a case like Hungary, for example, and Viktor Orban, uh, we were talking about him earlier. One of the reasons that he was able to come to power is because both establishment political parties of the left and right had discredited themselves. And in particular, the center left government that was in power before Orban got in trouble uh, because they had made a lot of promises about not cutting services. Uh, but the economy uh, was tanking. Well, not, maybe not tanking, but it was in decline and the government just didn't have the budget not to cut services. And so they ended up getting outed. of um, Not because they cut services, but because there was actually, I think, a recording that was released in which they were talking about how they'd lied during the campaign in which they'd been elected about not cutting services when they actually knew that they were going to have to. So that destroyed a lot of establishment credibility and that made populists more popular in Hungary and in turn led to the election of Viktor Orban and his Jobbik party. I can't remember. Actually, maybe it wasn't Jobbik. Maybe that was the far right party. I don't quite remember what orbans, Please correct me on that chat. That's going to bug the hell out of me. <clears throat> Whatever his party was. The point is, that's a pattern you can see throughout Europe to varying degrees. Basically, uh, Europe's welfare systems are famously much stronger than in the U.S., but in turn, being bigger and stronger means they're more expensive. And that was creating a problem because Europe's economies were not growing very much in the 1990s. Obviously, Britain was, but they were kind of the exception because they had the Thatcherite revolution. Uh, Countries like France and Germany and Italy, etc., kind of struggled through the 90s with relatively low economic growth rates and continued to do so into the aughts to the point where there was a real question about whether or not the established welfare systems in those countries would be sustainable. And then 08 hit and the Eurozone crisis hit and then everything kind of went to shit. So the big question that came up then was, how can we deal with our lack of economic growth while at the same time maintaining the welfare and social programs that we've grown accustomed to having and benefiting from? And that's a circle that you really can't square. Because in order to maintain those programs, you're going to have to spend more, but you can't spend more because you don't have the economic growth. And in a lot of cases, to generate economic growth, you're going to have to cut spending generally of those kinds of social and welfare programs and a lot of regulations that are pro labor. So it's kind of a, it's a bad, it's a, it's the political problem from hell, basically. There's no way you can deal with the problem without pissing off a huge chunk of the electorate. And various politicians and parties have tried in different countries to try to force through reforms in the hope that The bad medicine can be forced through and then eventually benefit in the medium to long term, but they've always been punished at the polls. And then other parties have promised the moon. They've said, we won't do these kinds of dramatic economic reforms. We're going to maintain the welfare programs and it won't cost you anything. And then it ends up costing them something and they end up basically being back to square one. So nobody on the center left or center right of European politics has been able to deal with this kind of economic malaise that's come with the structural economic changes that have brought so many challenges to established economic uh, ways of making a living, established social norms, established political equilibria, you know, all of these are being challenged by technological innovation, international trade and uh, social change and the social change that these things inculcate. And uh, again, nobody has the clear answer to that. And the electorate is getting upset because they don't fully understand all of these changes are kind of interacting with each other. They just see individual changes that they don't like. They see deindustrialization. They see falling government spending. They see austerity. They see a decline in standards of living. They see that it's more difficult to make a living with just a high school education. Now you have to go to college, but not everybody can. And college can be expensive depending on what country you go to. So there's a lot of structural problems baked into this current era of change. And I, you know, we've talked about that before. We're probably going to reach a new equilibria sooner or later in which things kind of settle down. But for now, we're in the thick of the storm. We're in between equilibria and the changes are causing so much political churn uh, that voters don't really know what to make of it. And because the establishment political parties don't have clear solutions to these problems, they're turning more to populists of the far left and far right. And which people prefer kind of depends on the country and the political culture. But regardless, both far left and far right have benefited from the lack of, from the decline in the credibility of establishment parties. So this is what the rise of populism looks like in Europe. It has to do with deindustrialization, uh international trade, technology, etc. all of those structural economic changes, and uh, interacting with the decline in the ability of states to fund traditional social and regulatory regimes that people like, but don't want to make the sacrifices that might be necessary in order to really allow them to be continued to continue to fund them. So that's Europe. Um, in the U.S., we have something very similar, uh, only we don't really have a strong welfare regime. Uh, rather, what we have is, um, I guess what you could call rugged individualism, for lack of a better phrase. You know, there's a sense amongst uh, a lot of Americans, especially conservative Americans, that the ideal state is to be self-sufficient. And there is a desire for opportunities by which people can uh, do that but opportunities for people with high school educations have been declining as industry has declined or left the country or modernized uh, into technologically advanced uh, manufacturing establishments that don't require a lot of blue-collar labor and that's created a lot of again structural economic change that's resulted in political churn a lot of established ways of living and uh, livelihoods are going away, and a lot of people don't know what to do about that. You know, there are whole communities that used to be prime manufacturing communities that have kind of died off, and a lot of the people there don't know why or who to blame, and they get upset at the Democrats and Republicans uh, for saying that they're going to deal with the problem, but they're never really dealing with it because they can't. Uh, realistically, there's not a lot you can do to fight those structural forces without implementing a lot of disruptive regulations and laws and whatnot that would be just as disruptive as the structural economic change uh, as the changes that are being wrought by structural economic change so in that case you're almost making it worse in some ways and so people want to be self-sufficient but they can't do it because they don't have the opportunities and people get upset and then they turn to radical left or radical right solutions and so that's how it's manifesting more in the united states Now, it's also happening outside the Western world. You can also see it in places like uh, India. And in India's case, that has to do more with dynastic politics and the Indian National Congress. The Indian National Congress is the party that fought for India's independence from Britain. And they stayed in power for a long time, basically riding the momentum of that. But eventually they became corrupt, especially after Indira Gandhi took over the party. And for a while, she was able to maintain rule just kind of through political patronage and whatnot. But it had a very deleterious effect on the political culture, such that it became much more corrupt. It wasn't, and it was already kind of corrupt. But uh, you know, the fish rots from the head, as the old saying goes. And because the party was so powerful, when it became more corrupt, it basically turned into Indira Gandhi's personal political party rather than a grand political institution, as it had been before. Um, that caused corruption to cascade throughout the political system as a new norm, and it's basically remained so ever since. And eventually, the dam burst, and the public turned on the INC and embraced a new opposition political party called the BJP, the Bharatiya Janata Party. And this party was kind of the antithesis of the Indian National Congress. The Indian National Congress had been led by people who were Western educated, were pretty secular, were relatively laissez-faire, although really, in effect, they were more socialist. And uh, the BJP came along and said, to hell with all that. We're pro-business. We're going to get rid of the socialism, or at least mitigate it. Um, We're not secular. We believe that Hinduism should be, maybe not the official religion, but should be held up by the government, And that the government shouldn't shy away from bolstering Hinduism uh, as a symbol, so to speak, of Indian culture in India. Kind of like how uh, Orthodox Christianity is a symbol of Greek nationalism. Hinduism to the BJP is sort of the equivalent for India. So they're not secular per se. Uh, They're free market oriented. And uh, I forgot what the other one was. I'm getting a little tired, but... Basically, the antithesis of the INC. And for a while, they were in power for a while in the 90s as part of a broader coalition. And uh, this also corresponded with a major change in India's politics away from one what was in effect one party rule. You had the INC and just some smaller parties running against them. But in the 90s, a lot of regional parties started up uh, that catered to individual caste groups or individual ethnic groups or individual states or individual scheduled tribes, like lots and lots of different parties uh, catering to particular interest groups. And that ate away at the uh, voting share of the establishment parties, the INC and the BJP. So the BJP had to form a coalition with these guys and did so successfully such that they became the first major opposition uh, government in India. There had been one for a couple of years after Indira Gandhi tried to take over tried to establish emergency rule and basically become dictator of India, but that's a whole other conversation. This was the first stable example of an opposition party in in normal political circumstances. And uh, it lasted for a while. Eventually, the INC got voted back in because of allegations of corruption, yada, yada, yada. And they were in power for a while under a guy named Manmohan Singh, who was very popular in the beginning of his tenure, but eventually people kind of got to dislike him because they saw him as kind of ineffective. You know, he was anti-corruption himself. He was pretty good with business. I think he had been the uh, head of the central bank for a while in India before. Uh, But by the end of his term, his second term or something to that effect, uh, it was clear that he wasn't able to really rein in the corruption in the INC and that he was not the real power in the INC, that the real power was a person named Sonia Gandhi, who was... Her history is a little convoluted, but basically she's related to Indira Gandhi. So you can see the continuation of dynastic politics there. Well, people in the public got tired of low economic growth rates. They wanted more opportunities, more liberalization, and they got tired of the INC's corruption. And they also wanted Hinduism to be a more prominent part of public life, including political life. And so they voted in a populist dude named Narendra Modi, uh, some of you have, may have seen him in the news over the past few years, and he has been a big cheerleader for Hinduism, for India, for markets, uh, etc., to the point where a lot of his critics think he's borderline fascist because they think he wants to make Hinduism a kind of de facto official religion of India and that he's going to set up a sort of uh, maybe not theocracy per se, but you know, make Hinduism a more institutionalized part of the government. There's actually a Netflix series. Netflix has been making a lot of stuff for India lately, trying to break into the market. And one of them is kind of an Indian version of The Handmaid's Tale. So for those of you interested in The Handmaid's Tale, maybe you'll find this series interesting. Don't ask me what the title is, I forget. Um, But basically the idea is what if there were some kind of Hindu, Hindutva is what they're called, Hindu supremacist group that took control of India and suppressed women in the country. So that's vaguely sort of the premise of the show. So that's kind of the kind of fear that's percolating amongst liberal communities in India. They, uh, you know, some liberals enjoy the fact that, uh, like the fact that the Modi government is pushing, uh, liberalizing the economy and whatnot, you know, trying to open up business. But really, there's been a much more permissive attitude towards uh, caste-based violence and other forms of violence from traditionally powerful hindu groups in the country and that's rubbed a lot of people the wrong way that's made a lot of liberal groups and the inc very uncomfortable so on the one hand pro-business but on the other hand a uh, seemingly unhealthy relationship with nationalism and religion kind of like erdogan in turkey you can kind of think of him like that turkey's actually another good example but just to kind of round off the india thing modi and his form of populism emerged Uh, because of the collapse and the credibility of the INC as a political party. They became too associated with corruption and patronage politics, and they failed too miserably at uh, generating economic growth and opportunities for the public. And also, I might add that the period of economic growth in India that happened after its initial liberalization of its markets in the early 1990s generated a new class of people who were, were not Western educated, but had money. You know, they were entrepreneurs who were able to build fortunes based off of their own effort, but they didn't have that same westernized education that a lot of people in the INC had. And so they weren't as wedded to Western notions of secularism and liberalism and liberal democracy and whatnot. And so that probably also fed into the rise of populism in India. You have a whole new group coming up that has very different ideas of what constitutes Indian culture, Indianness and uh, what the future for India should be. Now, Turkey, for its part, had a similar genesis. Turkey had been controlled by a secular nationalist group called the CHP. Uh, Basically, uh, people who had followed Ataturk, you know, disciples of Ataturk, the guy who kind of founded modern Turkey. Uh, But as part of their effort to modernize Turkey, they suppressed uh, religion in large part, or at least radical religion. And that kind of rubbed a lot of people in the wrong way, especially conservatives in rural areas. So when the Turkish military and the Turkish secular nationalist government finally started opening up the country's politics, uh, the result was that there was a huge rush towards groups that were more religious because that political orientation had been suppressed for so long. There was a lot of pent up demand for that. And so some of those groups were radical, and that's not really what people were interested in. But there was this group called the AKP that came in and promised to emphasize Islam and traditional Islamic values, while at the same time pushing, pro-business, pushing a pro-business policy that emphasized markets instead of state control. So that ended up being a winning formula. You're going to give us opportunities, and you're going to return our religion to the public sphere. For a lot of conservative Turks, that was a winning platform, and it served the AKP the AKP well ever since. And uh, that period of economic opening corresponded with that global economic boom, and so Turkey benefited correspondingly. And Turkey's economy did really well in this period, and a- and the AKP got credit for that. So that opening that cultural opening, open space for the sort of cultural populism of the the AKP that happened after the military gave up power. And that itself was part of a broader democratization movement that happened after the end of the Cold War. That wasn't that unusual in the 90s. But then the economic side of it just tied into that overarching global boom that was happening. So in Turkey's case, it had more to do with the suppression of traditional values and... uh, a well-timed political and economic opening. So that's just a couple of examples, one in the Middle East, Europe, the U.S., and India, just to kind of illustrate how populism has emerged over the past 10, 20 years in different places, but roughly over the same time period. They all have kind of different reasons, but they all roughly tie in to that period of economic opening in the 90s. That's sort of that common thread between them. Cool. I know that's not an uh, that's not an all-encompassing answer. I'm sure there are other factors at play, but again, off the top of my head, that's sort of what I'm coming up with. So last question, and then uh, what are the upsides and downsides of a Trump re-election? So the upside is that you're going to get a continued strong position on China, because uh, say what you will about the Trump administration, you can't really doubt that they have a pretty clear view about what's going to constitute trade relations with China in the future. They don't really have a clear plan of how to get to that, but I think they have a pretty clear idea of what what they want it to look like. And so on the one hand, you could argue that a different president might be better, uh, might have a better or might have more organization in their administration and might be better able to contrive a better organized plan by which to reach certain objectives. Um, the benefit of having Trump in in office is that he has a lot of credibility. Like when he makes threats, he carries them out. So that gives the U S government a lot of negotiating leverage that it hadn't really had in a while before that, you know, a lot of countries took the view that the U S wanted to have its military overseas more than other countries wanted them to be overseas that other, that the U S wanted to have strong economic ties more than other countries wanted to have strong economic ties. And the result is that because the U.S. was perceived like that, then the U.S. government didn't have a lot of leverage to work with, that it could apply against other countries. With Trump in office, you don't have that problem. Although you could argue that even if Trump loses, that leverage is still there, because then the next president could argue, well, if you don't give me some concessions, then the people back home are going to be pissed and then Trump gets elected again. Is that what you want? So that's a credible threat now because they can just point to the fact that he already won in 2016. So somebody like him could hypothetically win again. And in that sense, the U.S. government is imbued with new leverage, even if Trump, the guy that gave that leverage, isn't reelected. But regardless, the upside is that he has that credibility, and so that's advantageous in certain negotiations. Um, That's one upside. Uh, I guess you could say another upside is that uh, it would please a lot of people uh, on the right of the United States. you know, For those of you who maybe didn't live through the Obama administration or who lived through it but don't remember it very well, uh, a lot of people on the political right of the United States were very, very paranoid and upset with the Obama administration and the Obama administration's vision for the future of the United States in the direction they felt he, uh, he was taking them. So for that reason, Trump's election kind of diffused a lot of that pressure. It let a lot of air out of the balloon. You know, there was a lot of consternation on the right, and it was just kind of growing with time. And by having Trump win office, you kind of alleviate that pressure. So that's another upside. That continues to be alleviative. And people feel, especially people who feel they've traditionally have not been represented by the establishment Republican wing, the establishment wing of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. Those people in particular feel that they're getting representation that they haven't had in a long time. So that's also advantageous since it restores some uh, credibility and sense of faith and legitimacy of the U S government and its political institutions. So those are some advantages, Um, disadvantages, downside. If Trump gets reelected, I think there's going to be a much more dramatic realignment in foreign relations in the way that other countries deal with the United States for now. There's kind of a sense that this might be a temporary thing, you know, in European capitals and Japan, China, et cetera. There's a sense that maybe this Trump thing is just a temporary phenomena and that it goes away after four years and then things kind of go back to normal or at least something resembling normal. You know, maybe the U.S. tried crack once and it's going crazy, but then it's going to give it up forever. So then it's not a problem. That kind of attitude. But if Trump gets reelected, that means that it's not a temporary thing. That suggests that, in fact, this could be a permanent realignment of American priorities, values, and objectives in the international arena. And if that's the case, that means that other countries need to realign their values and objectives accordingly. So right now, they haven't really done that. Some Some of America's partners have implemented hedging strategies to varying degrees, but there hasn't really been a significant break in relations yet. But if Trump gets reelected, that's going to be a real concern that they're actually going to have to take seriously, because it's going to seem that Trump so to speak, and that sort of Trump perspective of politics and foreign relations is going to be here to stay. And if that's the case, a lot more than just hedging strategies are going to be needed. There's going to be a need. There's going to be needed a real reevaluation of what the relationship with the United States needs to look like and what it needs to prioritize. So the downside would be that probably American power would be damaged by that because the U.S. would then have much less leverage and weaker ties with other countries uh, through which to use its power and express its preferences and pursue its preferences in the international arena. I know a lot of people would not consider that a negative. Some people would say that if Trump gets reelected and there's major such realignment with partners, that would mean less liabilities and commitments for the U.S. and then the U.S. could spend more resources at home. Uh, But in general, a perceived, a potential downside, depending on how you want to interpret it, would be that American power would probably be hurt, and there would probably be more of a withdrawal from the world in general. Not completely, but just roughly in general. So that's one downside. Um, Another downside is that maybe in another four, maybe with another four years, the Trump administration gets more organized. But right now it's not. And there's a chance that if he gets reelected his administration continues to be relatively disorganized. And that's not really good for anybody. Um, ideally, there would be a candidate in office who had Trump's charisma and credibility, but who was better at managing the White House, the executive branch, the administrative duties of a president, etc. Basically, someone who was better at planning coherently, and producing good strategy. And right now, I don't entirely get the sense that that's there. There's bits and pieces that are coherent. There's some strategies that make sense, but it doesn't really ever seem to come together into a coherent whole very well. And you can kind of see that in the way that different people in the administration have competed with each other for Trump's ear over time. There's not really a single plan. There's a lot of different plans competing with each other within the administration amongst different actors competing for power. Maybe one of them eventually wins that contest and becomes the sole decision maker, but that comes with its own set of problems depending on who's making those calls.
0: <clears throat> well, you've got a few different steps here. You've got a plan, you've got an actionable plan, and then you've got a feasible actionable plan. Usually he doesn't make it to the second one, which was <laughs> the third one.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that is kind of the criticism of the Trump administration. Planning doesn't seem to be the administration's forte, per se. Uh, But they have gotten some results in their unique proprietary approach to policymaking, shall we say, uh, by kind of being unpredictable and random. That gives them a little more leverage in some negotiations than they would would have otherwise. It increases uncertainty in markets and society, which creates problems in its own right. But it also opens up opportunities that maybe weren't expected and that can provide returns uh, then that kind of makes up for the uncertainty to some degree.
0: There's also the kind of social progressive issues, and he's basically a big villain to people who are on the left for kind of being progressive about LGBT rights, uh, women's rights, things like that. Mm -hmm. It seems like he doesn't really actively do a whole lot to undermine them, but the way that he talks, I think, emboldens people who uh, resist that uh, direction of change. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a big part of the power of the presidential office. It's not just what you do. It's the example that you set and which groups get empowered as a result and feel like they have a a strong influence in the country at that period in time.
1: Yeah. And I think it's important to add there uh, for Trump support, you know, for the benefit, you know, for the other side on that, that that is not an argument suggesting that Trump is doing that on purpose. He's not purposely trying to incite people to do those things, to commit acts of violence, et cetera. Uh, rather, it's more just that he's not being sufficiently careful with the way he says things and the way he relates to certain groups and people and ideas uh, in order to ensure, to hedge against people getting the wrong idea, quote unquote. I think that would be a, a fairer assessment than to say, as some people have criticized the president as That he's engaging in some kind of purposeful strategy to uh, utilize the far right to bolster his political support and build some kind of de facto coalition. I don't think that's really true, because, again, planning isn't really his thing, per se. And I think that kind of gives him too much credit in that regard. I think it's more likely he's just gaffy prone and he doesn't really fully understand the power of presidential speech uh, in political society, like you say but I just wanted to make that distinction so that it's clear that it's not necessarily that he's doing it on purpose and that it's some kind of grand conspiracy. I think it's more likely that he's just talking out of his ass and shooting from the hip most of the time.
0: (laughs) Yeah. There's also the just basic primate uh, desire to have people like you. And sometimes there'll be a group that Uh, likes you and has a fondness for you that maybe is a really bad group. But uh, for him, I think maybe in the back of his mind, if I had to take a wild guess, he would think that that was kind of cool that some group likes him, even if it's something that's pretty bad. Mm -hmm. That's a a tricky thing to manage too is as a, a person who's in office, you want to have influence and you want to have votes and support, but you don't want to have support from everyone. If you stand on any principles, there are going to be groups of people who stand against those principles, so you shouldn't really vie for their support. Maybe you can communicate with them and like find compromises because they're part of your community and things like that, but at the same time, you're not going to win everybody over and you shouldn't expect to, mm-hmm. which is a pretty difficult thing to do in a lot of cases, I think. Some of them are obviously more nuanced and less obvious than others. Mm-hmm. Um, like if someone is a, a hate group or whatever supporting you, that should be obvious that you're not trying to work for their support. But there are other groups that are sort of at odds with you. And if they are throwing their hat in your ring, then maybe that uh, means that you should reevaluate what your position is. But being principled is, is an active quest for every person, I think. Understanding what you believe in and how that guides your decision-making what your morals are, what your ethics are, and how you uh, strive to implement those in a real way, like as part of your behavior, not just what you say. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I would concur.
0: That's a good summary. Or you could tweet every thought that pops into your head. You can can also do that. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to 2019.
1: A very interesting era to live in. Interesting times.
0: Yeah, it's weird because in a way, it almost seems like we've uh, taken a few steps backward in terms of being guarded and professional with how we communicate with each other. Because the internet eases communication so much, there's uh, less of a barrier to say something, which means the quality of a lot of conversation can go down as opposed to before. If you actively had to print stuff out and then ship it, then there's more of a cost, which means You want to choose those words more carefully.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that that actually ties into what you were talking about before with the devil's bargain. Because I distinctly remember when I was much younger, but just getting into politics, that people complained about politicians being disingenuous and not speaking their mind. Well, careful what you wish for, because that's exactly what you've got now. Now you know why they weren't doing that.
0: There was a study recently that said that people who use words that are not politically correct, or I think they also swear, increases their perceived uh, genuineness. Mm-hmm. So a listener will think the person is more genuine if they go out of bounds with what they're saying, mm-hmm. which doesn't necessarily mean that they're a more genuine person. It just means that you are going to be perceived as less influenced by other people. Mm-hmm. So there was a a fun comment on that study that I read of a high school teacher who was saying that when you're dealing with rambunctious high schoolers, using a swear word can really uh, shift their attention and catch them off guard. So punctuating what you say is an aspect of the art of communication. Choosing how you do that, I think, is its own area of skill. Kukio, I think, was one of the best communicators in that regard. He could pull your attention not just by shouting. He could also do it by getting more quiet than you were before and how that is its own statement that the words that I'm saying are so pointed that I don't need to increase my speaking volume to communicate that. You can tell because the words are so important. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a fun challenge for you is, and, and everybody is to think about your communication and how you Emphasize and punctuate what you're saying, how you are genuine or how you're not genuine, and how you want to improve upon that. Speechcraft is hard. Good luck.
1: <laughs> I could use some practice myself.
0: Well, you could say that every one of these discussions is a little bit of practice.
1: A little bit. Space Force. Space Force. <laughs> <laughs> Tariff. <laughs>
0: On today's episode of Agent Smith, we learned about extremely powerful mining equipment. <laughs> well, I had a great time this episode. We had a nice what three hours and forty one minutes. You're probably due to get some rest. Thank you very much for your time, Agent Smith. It's always well, thank you for having, me. having you on. on as always. yep. This will be on YouTube and I believe, assuming we did everything correctly, it should be posted as a podcast as well. So you could consume this as an audio only format. Um, Thank you Moss for taking questions last time that spilled over into this one. And thank you Neuro, for reading some of the questions
1: (laughs) in the chat. (laughs) Yes. Thank you, sir. I'll take care,
0: Agent Smith. Yep. We'll see you on the next one.
1: See you next time.